a golden god! An equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> Who's weirder, you or me? You just put the law on my hands, and I'm gonna break your heart. Nobody puts baby in the water. Whatever you do, don't fall Welcome back to Movies for Life. I'm one of your co-hosts, Brian Kuyper. And I'm your other co-host, Michelle Egan. And today we return to one of our Friends Forever Favorites episodes. These are a lot of fun for us, where we get to invite on a guest, and they get to talk about a favorite movie of theirs. For our second guest, we have Stephen Foxworthy of the Disenfranchise podcast. Absolutely thrilled to be here. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for coming Um, on. Absolutely. Both of us met you through the pod and the pendulum i think because yeah uh, <laughs> accurate yeah because uh it was a script reading for you and i uh mm-hmm. during the quarantine days which was halloween <laughs> a four. fascinating time oh halloween four i was yes. sheriff bracket and that. i was like five other characters that's right <laughs> that's right i did the- i did all the weird creepy voices of all those below the line characters. i think i was your deputy as well at one point so how did i miss this it was a couple years ago. Yeah. October 2020, I think, is when that came out. Yeah, something like that. That was a wild script read. That was so much fun. And yeah. then we did it again the next year with uh, the It with script it. reading. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. Another sure. one where I played like five below the line characters. <laughs> yeah. I never get into those things early enough to like score one of the big roles. So I'm always like, I don't know. I'll just take <laughs> these 10 characters that are left, I guess. Yeah. And then uh, you were just recently... Yeah, on, uh, we were on a Child's Play 2 episode. Child's Play 2, absolutely. Super fun. Yeah, absolutely it was. Yeah, I just visited those movies for the first time last year. So it's fun to kind of revisit some of them and talk about them on that podcast again. So, And it was, of course, great to meet you. That was so weird to be on that show and be like, I've seen this movie like 800 times. It's been in my life forever. And then all three of you were like, just saw it for the first time last year. <laughs> right. Like, wow, yeah. okay. <laughs> totally that made you the, That made you the content expert, though, so... <laughs> You know, you you took us all to school and, you know, told us why Kyle is the best final girl of all time. Because she fucking is. That's right. Because she, she fucking is. There it is. Oh, yeah. yeah. After Nancy Thompson, she is. No. Uh, oh, wow. Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my top three are um, Sydney Prescott, Laurie Strode, and uh, Stretch from TCM2. So. Oh. Stretch is cool. Nice. Yeah, rewatched TCM two in, in advance of the the latest one, and I, I was just new appreciation for Stretch after that rewatch. So I wrote an yeah. article about her many years ago. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, yeah, she's cool. I like Stretch. What movie did you bring for us today? What movie did I bring? Uh, so I brought the greatest film of all time. This is the most basic bitch opinion I could possibly have as as a, as a person who loves movies. But I brought 1941s. I brought visual aids on a podcast. How, nice. how lame! Am no, I, I love it. Um, I brought 1941's uh, Citizen Kane, directed, produced, written, and starring Orson Welles, who is maybe my favorite cultural icon ever. 
Uh, I'm a big Orson Welles fan, have been for years, and I think Kane is his best movie. Again, sure. maybe the most basic opinion I can possibly have. I always get pushback when Who I cares? tell people my favorite movie is Citizen Kane. Like, are you just saying that to sound smart? I'm like, no. I say a lot of things to sound smart. This is not one of them. I say this because it's actually my favorite movie because it's really yeah. fucking good. Uh, and every time I watch it, it just reaps constant benefits and constant rewards. I see something new in it every time. It's so deep. It's so rich. It amazes me every time. I put it on at like 1130 last night and I, I was tired when I put it on. It woke me right back up. I was super engaged. I was right there with it. Like, I love this movie to no end. It, it is my favorite film of all time. No question. Never apologize for something like that either. We had this conversation on when we talked about Dirty Dancing. Like, who cares what everybody else says? Your favorite movie is your favorite movie. Right. I, I just, I, I want to address the elephant in the room. Like, everyone's always like, is it though? And I'm like, it, it is though, actually. Like, everyone kind of doubts that that's my favorite. They're like, oh, you're just saying that because AFI said it's the right. best. Or Titan <laughs> Sound said it was the best for 70 straight years. I'm like, that's why I checked it out the first time. But that's not mm. what made me fall in love with it. That's sure. not what made me keep, that's not what keeps me coming back to this movie. Sure. What I find to be surprising, maybe even every time I watch it, is you go into this movie, oh my gosh, it's the greatest movie ever. It's uh, on all these tops, all these lists, like you said, but it's just so damn entertaining. Mm -hmm. Every like single actually time a good movie, yeah. <laughs> walk yeah. into it and go, it is not homework. It's fun to watch. The story is engaging. The visuals are so striking oh and fun gosh. to see, you know? Yeah. Um, it's got a lot of humor. It's got all... It's, it's, I was cracking up last everything. night watching this thing. It's so funny. There was something yeah. I missed, like, the first time that just made me, like, lose it. <laughs> like, the third mm -hmm. time I watched it. I've, like, fallen in love with this movie now, too, actually. Because <laughs> yeah. I saw it for the first time in high school and I didn't really watch it since then. Maybe because I was too young to, like, really understand or appreciate it or connect with it at any way. And when I watched it this time, like, okay, usually I'm really nervous about whatever movie we're talking about for the podcast. And then I was like, this fool picks the greatest movie of all time that I had to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> like, no pressure there. But no, none whatsoever. <laughs> But I decided, you know what? No, I'm not going to worry about any of that. I'm just going to sit down. And I'm going to watch this like I would any other movie. And I fucking loved it. And it was and so good. And that's the like, right way to approach it. Yeah. I think when you approach it with those preconceived notions and that yeah. kind of expectation, I think most of the people that I talk to about this movie that I recommend it to and they watch it are kind of like, I mean, I get it. Yeah. Because they're coming in with all these, pre like, this is the greatest movie of all right. time. But if you just approach it as a movie. I think you're going to get a lot more out of it. And again, it's one that I just can't help but keep coming back to. And it's so, there's so much going on. There's so much nuance in this film that I just, I'm pulling stuff out of it every time. Like I saw something last night that I'd never seen before in this movie. I've seen it probably 20 times and mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm pulling new stuff out of it every time I watch it. So, I love movies so like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is one of the best. And I know that I said this a lot on the Child's Play 2 episode, and I, I said it again when I was on the Bride of Chucky episode for Pod and the Pendulum, but deep focus. I am a sucker for deep focus. <laughs> I love it so much. Whenever I see it in a movie, I'm just like, yes, they're going deep. Yeah. And the, there's the scene, it's early in the film where you've got Everett Sloan as Mr. Bernstein, like right up in the, at the edge of the camera. And you've got Thatcher kind of off to the side and Kane mm -hmm. is kind of centered behind them. And he mm -hmm. turns around and he starts walking and you're like, well, this is just a set. Eventually he's going to have to stop. He keeps walking all the way to the back wall and you realize they are in a gigantic room and he just walks all the way to the back of that room 
turns and comes all the way back. And you realize just how enormous the set is. And it's all yeah. thanks to Greg Tolland's use of deep focus on that. And I, I love it. I, and he uses it so much. Like that's probably the, the most show off example, but mm-hmm. deep focus is all over this movie. Maybe one of the reasons I love it so much, cause it just goes hard on that deep focus. I'm like, nice. Yeah. And that element makes it seem like such a huge mm-hmm. movie, yeah. even though it was everything made about with- it feels like such yeah. a yeah huge scope movie but it's really not yeah no it's it's, it, it's a lot of it is tricks it's yeah. shadows and darkness and light in just the right spot yeah um and the deep focus just makes it seem so much bigger and so much more expensive than it actually is. One of my favorite things about the movie is knowing later, you know, I didn't know this the first time I watched it was how kind of minimal it was on its budget mm-hmm. and everything it was able to do just through the genius of, of Greg Tolland, Orson Welles, Herman Mankiewicz, you know, that yeah. script. I mean, come on. Absolutely. And I, and I do tend to believe that Herman Mankiewicz wrote the script in general, <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, that is kind of the popular opinion. I don't like yeah. to erase Wells from that narrative. No, obviously. no, I don't. I'm not saying he had nothing to do with it, but right. I'm saying I it's, think it's very obviously his story. But yeah. I think a lot of that, like inside baseball stuff about the Hearst family and yeah. that all came from Mankiewicz because he was, he had a seat at their table. Like he was yeah. one of Marion Davies favorite guests. Cause he just was a catty bitch and would just yeah. dish on everybody. So, yeah. You know, there are sort of like two different versions of the making of this movie on film. There's Mank, right, which just came out last year, which is pretty negative on Orson Welles. It is, very much so. And that sort of rubbed me the wrong way, I got to admit. Same. Um, I like Mank, but I don't like its treatment of Welles. Yeah, I didn't love Mank. I thought it was okay. Uh, The other one is... It's not Fincher's best by a long shot. No, no. The other one is is, was like a HBO movie. Uh, RKO, RKO 281. 281. Yeah. yeah. Which I love the idea of Mankiewicz and Wells sitting down, hanging out, writing the script together. That's I the that's that's the version I want to have in my head. That's the version that I always wanted to be the case. And, Absolutely. But, you know, if it's closer to Mank than it is to 281, then oh well. But <laughs> and it may um, very well be. But yeah. again, I I'm just happy that enough people in Hollywood loved Mank that it it did end up winning Wells his only competitive Oscar for for best original screenplay for that movie. So yeah. But yeah, I and again, I'm not I'm not willing to completely erase him from the na- uh, the narrative. I'm not Pauline Kael, uh who's going to say oh he had right. nothing to do with it. But and and I mean, that opinion kind of tanked his career when he was just starting to like pull funding together and it kind of shot his chances in the foot of completing like the other side of the wind during his lifetime, because that opinion became like the pervasive narrative in Hollywood from when that article was published, which is really a bummer. Yeah. And, you know, I've never read that article all the way through, but I've kind of read um, Peter Bogdanovich's response to it. Oh, yeah. Bogdanovich. And, and, and of course, you know, Wells' acolyte, yeah. he had nothing good to say yeah. about Pauline Kael. <laughs> no. And Pauline Kael, I imagine, probably never again had anything good to say about Peter Bogdanovich. You're that was just right, kind yeah. of the way she was. You know, uh, Sidney Lumet mm-hmm. uh, stood up to her one time and she hated every other single movie he ever made. Yep. You know, My, it's yeah. like... <laughs> Here's the thing. I think she comes off worse in that than than he ever did. Cause... Oh, yeah. Because she's the one going, really, this is you You hated this. This is a Stone Cold classic. Why are you? Oh, because he was OK. Yeah, right. 
Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't think history is going to paint her quite as quite as well as it paints a lot of the people that she didn't like. I know. But in that, the moment, she was it. She was. She was. And, you know, I'm, this is not to discount Pauline Kael. I think she's an important critic, an important Agreed. voice in the history of, you know, sort of the reclamation of movies at a, in the 70s. But yes, she had some opinions that were rough <laughs> for she, me. To, yeah. You, know. you got to take the good with the bad. Yes, she yeah. is absolutely important. Yes, she is foundational. But on the other hand, she did all the stuff that she did. She, yep. you know, discredited great artists and, you know, shot down films and, and good art based on her own personal grudges. Like you got to take the good with the bad with this stuff, you know? And, and in that way, I think she kind of comes off a little like maybe a person like William Randolph Hearst, who kind of had his knives mm. out for Citizen Kane yeah, because of the alleged similarities uh, between uh, <laughs> its title character and uh, his own life. Yeah. So there's so much to talk about with a movie like this. And I you could know, talk for hours. I really could and have how we approach it. Um, we kind of want to have you sort of, you know, what is it that draws you? What do you love most about it? And, you know, we will jump in and out and let you sort of carry us through this sure. uh, as much as you want or, you know. I've got some I, notes too, and I, I know have Michelle's no script too. So I am just gonna uh, let's let's just turn this into a riff fest. Um, Sounds good. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I don't know. I, I saw this movie for the first time in high school based on a friend of mine telling me that AFI had voted it the number one movie of all time. I think on their ninety eight list or ninety five or whenever they did that first list. And he was telling me a little bit about the rich guy who was supposedly about who uh, decided to try to bury it and couldn't find it for years and years. And but it's the greatest movie of all time. And I'm like, we'll just see about that. You know, like so many uh -huh. other people when they hear I'm like, well, we'll just see. And so I watched it and I was like, that's really good. I was like, I don't know if best movie of all time, but is really good. Uh, and after that, I became kind of quietly obsessed with Orson Welles. Like he just became like this figure of fascination for me. And the more I learned about the guy, the more fascinated I became. So my freshman year of college, I took an acting class and we had to do like a profile of an actor and everyone else is picking like Denzel Washington and Johnny Depp and Steve Buscemi. And I'm like, can I get Wells? And my professor's like, sorry, because his name was also Wells spelled mm -hmm. differently. He's like, what? And he thought, I think he thought I was like kissing up to him or something. I'm like, Orson Welles. And he goes, oh, I mean, I guess like, do you, if you want to do one on an older actor? Sure. I'm like, yeah, I absolutely want to do one on an older actor. And so I dug in further, found out more history. And as I got more and more into film, I got more and more into Wells and more and more into his filmography. And I revisited Citizen Kane again and again and again. And every time I, I noticed every time I came back to it, there was something else there. And I don't know at what point it became crystallized for me. Like, oh, I think this might be my favorite movie. But it was just because it was one that I just kept coming back to. When I taught high school, I taught a two-week course on the life and work of Orson Welles. And we studied a lot of his films. We took a whole day and just watched Citizen Kane. It, he's one of those filmmakers that I have just such a deep amount of respect for. We were talking before the record. I, you know, I said I love when artists take big swings. I love when artists get the chance to make the art they want to make. And this is pretty much the only chance he ever got in Hollywood to make the art he wanted to make. It was the only time he never had any kind of oversight. And so I feel like this is, in a lot of ways, maybe the purest distillation of his auteurist vision. Yeah. Which, again, I love. I, I'm an auteurist. I love auteurs. I love when when artists get to make that art. So the fact that I think this is the only chance he got to do that is is pretty incredible. What is it about it specifically like his style or the, the the outlook that he has on the character or the lifestyle or what is it? 
It's it's a little bit of everything. I mean, in terms of the filmmaking, like I love the theatricality that he brings to it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a theater kid from way back. Even in this rewatch, I notice the the lighting choices that he's making are very theatrical. The way mm-hmm. that like all the lights on the set will go out except for maybe a couple spots and then like the backlighting from like the window mm-hmm. or uh, the way that they spotlight Dorothy Comingor right before they go to her flashback. Like it, it just it all of a sudden it's dark and then boom, right in her face. One of my favorites is like right at the beginning when the guys are uh, after they've watched the reel and like all of their faces are they're are blacked out and it's like mm-hmm. the light is just on their bodies. I don't know why I, I really liked that. <laughs> yeah, I love. And of course, that's a trick to hide the fact that they couldn't hire extra actors. So they literally just pulled in the company. And so in, mm-hmm. in high def, you can see it's Erskine Sanford and it's Joe Cotton and it's Ray Collins and it's Paul Stewart. And it's all the actors you're going to see later on in the film in different roles, but they couldn't find anybody else. So they're like, <laughs> right, let's bring these guys in here and we'll, we'll so just cool. make it really dark yeah. so you can't see their faces. Yeah. And that awesome um, shot then, behind when he's uh, looking right at the projection light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It looks really cool. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. But and, and yeah, it's 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 the theatricality of it. It's it, but it's also kind of his outlook. A lot of comparisons have been drawn between Wells's own life and and Kane's life. And Wells has said mm-hmm. that's all kind of coincidental, and we shouldn't look into that. But I think that's kind of a defense mechanism on his part, kind of deflecting. He's like, I didn't want to be this guy. <laughs> I think is where it's all coming from. But yeah, it ends up being you kind of are. <laughs> you know, just. And that's kind of the Wellsian protagonist, like someone who's, who's yeah. whose end is brought about based on his own hubris and his own mm-hmm. desire for some kind of love or validation. Like mm-hmm. I think of Hank Quinlan in Touch of Evil, uh, Falstaff in Chimes at Midnight. All of his characters kind of have that through line in common. So it's it's easy to kind of see Citizen Kane as kind of the starting point, the linchpin, kind of the, the first domino that falls in that trajectory because then so many of those characters and even characters like he didn't write like Harry Lime that become so associated with him. They also have that flaw. Um, And -hmm. I would, I would call Lime his best performance. Maybe Charles Foster Kane, a close second, maybe third after Falstaff. I don't know, but like that, that's kind of just something that all of his characters seem to have in common. And I think it's because that's something that whether he was conscious of it or not, whether he wanted to be conscious of it or not, that's something that he maybe saw in himself um it you know they say write what you know so you know maybe those are the kind of characters that he tended to write because that's what he knew also his love of shakespeare i think is portrayed in that as well mm-hmm. because kane feels very i mean as far as the arc of the character it's kind of shakespearean in that sense you know just this large long tragedy that is the doing of the person themselves yeah, absolutely you know, it's their their undoing is the tragedy of them is all because of themselves exactly and that's very shakespearean and also you know the fact that there infuses so much humor even in the tragedies there's always humor so anyway just his love of shakespeare is is well known I oh mean, yeah he produced you know a lot of very famous versions of these plays and, you know, he made three Shakespeare movies. He was working on a fourth. Mm-hmm. He wanted to make The Merchant of Venice. Yep. There's some um, test footage out there of that, if you know where to look. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen the one of him giving the uh, Hath a Jew Eyes mm-hmm. speech. Yeah. And, and it's quite it good. It is very it's good. very moving. Yeah, I, I would have loved to see that. So I think that a lot of that find its, finds its way into Kane 
And what really strikes me, though, as far as what is seems so different and so revolutionary from anything else, uh, because I, overlapping dialogue, you know, Hawks had been doing that. Yeah. Um, you had deep focus, I'm sure, in other things. I I, ha- I couldn't think of a good example, but I'm German sure expressionism that would do stuff like oh, that all there the time. Yeah. Of course, of course, German expressionism and then like ceilings and stuff like that, that it gets a lot of credit for. John Ford had done that sure. in uh, in Stagecoach. Stagecoach, actually, I guess, was a really important movie to the making of of uh, Citizen Kane. You just would uh, sit in a room and watch that over and over and over again. Over yeah. and over again, like 40 times or something like mm-hmm. that is, is was the number I heard last. Yeah. And so a lot of these things have been done. But I mean, the structure of this thing just seems to blow the lid off of everything. Absolutely. It's for for the early 40s. It's not a beginning to end narrative. And you see the beginning and the end in the very beginning. Yeah, you see the end. It starts at the end. And And it tells the whole story from one perspective and then you get to see, oh, that's not actually how it was, which that's what I really liked about it. He doesn't quite Rashomon it because it's not the same event from multiple perspectives, but it's the same life from multiple perspectives. So we do get to see what all these other people kind of thought about this individual and thought about this man. And that I think is, is fairly relevant. And I I think that's ultimately in terms of theme, what he's the, the idea that he's getting at, which is, does anybody really know anybody? Um, You know, because we all, we all see this person from, from different angles. We all think different things about him based on our relationship with him. But at the end of the day, there are still pieces missing. You know, people are fully formed. Yeah. Even even scoundrels have souls. You know, and and that's that's the last shot of the movie is that no trespassing sign uh, on the front of the gates of Xanadu, saying like, no, you you really can't get to know anyone. Which is, I think, why Rosebud kind of betrays the, uh, I think, the theme a little bit because you're like, oh well, you know, he just was longing for his childhood. Well, no, there's a lot more to it than that. That's maybe yeah. where it starts, yeah. but. The thing about Rosebud even is, you know, one of the things I like Roger Ebert obviously revered this Mm -hmm. movie as well. And, you know, he says something like, so Rosebud means everything, but it also means nothing. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's kind of that sort of a thing. And I love that. And back to the structure, one of the reasons why I like this so much is I've seen this movie, you know, I don't know, half a dozen, maybe more times. And every time I'm surprised at where it's going, I kind of forget that I know like the overall arc of his life, right? But it's like, oh, I forgot. We we have to go and visit Susan right at the beginning first. Right. And then we go over to- I always forget that we visit her at the front yeah. and then mm-hmm. go double yeah. back to her later. Like I always forget that. And I'm always like, we don't do this this early. And then she's like, get out. And I'm like, oh, right. We come, yeah. we're, com- we're coming back. Okay, we're good. Yep. Yeah. So rewatches, you can still have the feeling of being surprised by the movie. Mm-hmm. And I love that about it. And it's not just this straightforward birth to death. I mean, we see from Thatcher's perspective, you know, from his diaries, we see the child, we see the arrogant young man, we see the broken old man, Mm -hmm. you know, just within the course of a few minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we double back and we see Bernstein's sort of glowing rose-colored vision of this guy. Absolutely, It's like Cain is practically the woman in the with the white parasol that honestly he talks about. yeah 
Absolutely. He's just in love with this guy. Then Leland is just cynical as hell. Well, yeah. he, he's, he's been betrayed. Yeah. Like, yeah. He, I think he kind of stands in for the wife you can't talk to because I think he was every bit as betrayed mm-hmm. by that illicit affair, whatever you want to call it, uh, as she yeah. was. And so I think he kind of stands in for her because his feelings are very much her feelings. Yeah. And then, you know, Susan's version of it is just, I mean, the guy was obsessive. He was like a stage mother. Mm-hmm. This kind of dark vision. Everyone's story looks a little bit different at this guy is willing to see him only in a certain way, it seems like. Mm -hmm. And no one is objectively correct. Right. You can see why people would be enamored of him. You can see why people would hate him uh, because those perspectives play. You see why someone like Bernstein is just like, he's the greatest guy I ever knew. You know, oh, Mr. Kane. And he's a sycophant, really. Like he's just, oh, Mm -hmm. Mr. Kane, Mr. Kane. And Leland, I think, is always a bit more cautious, a bit more guarded. Like, oh, I want to keep that declaration of principles. I, I think that's going to be really important later. Can I, can I hold on to that? He seems to be the idealist. Like, he, I think, believes in the things that Cain professes to believe in, which is why mm-hmm. he's so betrayed when Cain ends up being just like every other politician, just like every other, uh, you know, maniacal demiurge or whatever. Like he's, he is media mogul. Exactly. He's exactly the same. He's no different. You don't actually believe these things that you said, which is why I held on to this paper from the start. And one of the things when he's writing out the declaration of principles and Kane's face is completely in the dark Mm -hmm. and Leland and Bernstein's are like lit brightly. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those things that's like, yeah, these guys knew what they were doing when they made this movie, yeah. even though in a lot of ways they didn't. And that's part of what makes it so cool. You know, like the way the fades look when when they do those crossfades. Oh, my gosh. They look so different in this movie than they do in anything else because they didn't know what they were doing. Right. They thought they had to bring the dimmer down on one set so that when they edit it together, the fades would would cross each other. And that's that's Wells' theatricality again speaking, because that's yeah. how you would do that in a stage production. Exactly. It's 100% how you would do that on stage. And yeah. and Wells is complete. Like, I remember hearing a story from the production. Well, Greg Tolland, cinematographer, incredible cinematographer, like best in the business, even at the time. He, he actually seeks Wells out when he hears Wells is in Hollywood. He's like, I want to work with you. And Wells is like, great. And so Wells is going around and like telling him like where he wants the lights, like move this over here, do that. And someone goes, that's not how you're supposed to do that. And Tolan's like, shut up. Like just tells him straight out, mm-hmm. shut up. He goes, you can learn more from people who don't know what they're doing sometimes than you can from the people who think they do. And I think that's kind of a brilliant that Tolan, even as the expert, as the best in the business at the time is like, there's something I can learn from this guy. Not that Wells is an unabashed genius. Obviously, I think he is a genius, but that wasn't where he was coming from. He was just like, this guy has his own experience and we could do something very different and very cool just by maybe looking at things a little differently than everyone else in Hollywood typically looks at these things. And by trying these kind of different lighting and camera angles and shots and things. I mean, just the audacity to dig a hole in the floor of the studio so that they could get the camera at foot level Mm -hmm. for that one scene. And, you know, that's such a counterintuitive shot. The more I think about that shot, Mm -hmm. the one where after they've lost the election Mm -hmm. to show them just towering like that is really unique. I mean, because the thought would be to make them look small, right? Mm -hmm. To make them look diminutive after this horrible defeat you know basically the lowest point in his life i mean his wife leaves him the same night he's gonna 
get blackmailed by boss Gettys and all of this, right? But instead, they show them sort of at their maximum height, like they are the masters of the universe. It's very interesting. It's it's an ex- it's an interesting juxtaposition. It's also, I think, the scene that really captures the the main theme of the movie, which is the thing that Kane is looking for most, which is just love, acceptance of some kind, of any kind, and he'll do and say whatever he can to get it. And Jed Leland has finally come to that conclusion himself and basically because he's drunk, just lets him have it. And so you get this mm. kind of Titanic battle of ideas, you know, to love on my terms, because those are the only terms anyone ever recognizes his own. And so in that sense, you've got like these again, it's it's his absolute lowest point, but they're talking about these lofty ideals and, you know. You talk to them mm-hmm. about the people as if you own them, as if you can make a gift out of their liberties. Or when you figure out that those masses, uh, one is their right, what you think is their gift. Leland just let, and I, every time I'm just like cheering Joe Cotton on from my couch, um, <laughs> just because he's just, mm, just laying into him. And I, I love that scene for so many reasons for the, for the camera angles, the performances, the theme, the thematic kind of entry point, like it's doing it all and it's all working so well. Like that may be one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Just though that conversation. Yeah. I like that scene too, because he does kind of lay it out for like what Kane's problem is and why he's not being successful in love. But at the same time, this movie has like so many different like little lines that I just loved that are just full of so much truce. Like one of my favorites is from, I can't remember if it was Bernstein or, or Leland who says um, that's one of the, biggest curses on the human is memory leland yeah leland okay i mean that goes back to kane too because i mean what does rosebud mean what do all of his problems stem back to is to that time that he was abandoned as a mm-hmm. child like that's why he's looking for love that's why he feels maybe unworthy of love and is doing everything he can to get it back mm-hmm. Th- that was kind of what i was thinking throughout the whole movie i was like do i actually like kane and you don't have to like him mm. obviously but you have to no. at least understand him Yes. And it's kind of interesting, too, that it's in the perspective of the person that he hated the most, Thatcher, that you actually get the truth mm-hmm. about the character. Mm-hmm. I, I really liked that a lot. And I love seeing Agnes Moorhead. Aggie <laughs> Moorhead. Yeah, baby. Always. Yes. <laughs> I was like, bewitched. She is like, so good in this. I was like, hell yeah. Yeah. She has so little to do in this movie, but she is so good. I always wondered what her motivations were exactly because you can see both sides of it you can see where she's kind of cold and like willing to just give up her child but at mm-hmm. the same time it's she's protecting him in a way or she, in her way she feels like but obviously he doesn't see that he just sees it as being abandoned by his family and left to his own devices and being raised by somebody that he hates so <laughs> well, she's she's i mean it's colorado they're not very well off to begin with they live in this boarding house in the middle of colorado in probably a mining community where people are sure. transient in and out looking for work a child's um, not gonna understand and, that though right no but i mean in terms of in terms of her like she's had a very mm. hard life and so she's trying to do the best thing she can for him because of her deep love for him but then what does that do to him like that really yeah. kind of fucks him up in the head um, something as small as, as that can fuck you up for the rest of your life yeah and obviously right? it did for him yeah there's a brief implication that the father was abusing abuses him yeah. too. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a sense that uh, she's protecting 
Kane from him as well. Right. Though he seems to undergo, you know, a different form of abuse psychological abuse. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like everything that, well, I mean, Thatcher hates Kane just as much right. as Kane hates him. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's, there's really no love at all between those two. It seems to me even like when he's writing out his declaration of principles, all of those stem from his hatred of mm, Thatcher. I think so. They're not mm-hmm. like anything he actually believes. He wants it's, to believe them. Yes. I think you're right, Michelle. I think he does want to, yeah. but yeah. he just, because, because oh, of yeah. the environment he was raised in though, he doesn't, I don't think. Because during that first like newsreel yeah. footage, like I said, I hadn't seen this movie forever. I f- totally forgot like what it was really about showing the, the extravagant life of this guy and you know he built this xanadu place like all to himself and had animals mm-hmm. everywhere i fucking hated him i was like i hate people like that right and then you kind of just wonder throughout the movie like okay i kind of see where that comes from i still don't really like you in a way but i get it i get it and just because citizen kane and rosebud has been like huge you know throughout the years like finally um realizing like what that actually meant i think it, it does mean everything and nothing it means a lot more i think to me i mean that was his one last like truly happy day yeah. i think is what it means mm-hmm. where he felt loved and wanted and appreciated and he never really got that back throughout his life through his own undoing yeah. and just through his inability i think the abandonment issues you know that causes people to um not being able to make connections uh, real connections maybe because he doesn't feel like he deserves it anymore and that yeah. kind of made me that made me sad for the character even though he doesn't do great things throughout the movie well and that's just it i think you can walk out and every time i walk out of this movie i feel somewhat differently about kane mm-hmm. like when i watched it yesterday I, I i hated him i was like oh that guy sucks you know but the time before that i was like no this guy's just misunderstood you know yeah. every time again you're you're pulling different things you're seeing it from the different perspectives and it gives you an opportunity to reevaluate this person every time you see it because the movie is not making a statement about him he is in so many ways a cipher that you can read so many different things on because everybody else does too mm-hmm. yeah you know and i think one of the things that i got with this viewing uh, a couple of things was you know just right off the top seeing the xanadu stuff again mm-hmm. and all of that the bible verse came to my mind <laughs> you know what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul right. so that was sort of the big thing but then there's also the fact that this one happy day was connected with this thing, this sled, mm-hmm. this actual physical item. He's spent the rest of his collecting life from stuff. that yeah. point collecting stuff, thinking it'll bring him happiness. Trying to fill the void. Actual, yeah, because yeah, an actual item you know, is associated with that. But that's not really what that happiness was linked to. It wasn't linked to that sled it was linked to things that were intangible, yeah. things that he couldn't collect. You know, and then when Susan later in the movies yelling at him, it's like, you're just giving me things. Yeah. I don't want things. I love that. <laughs> that's all you can ever do is give me things. Yeah. And that's not what I'm looking for. Yeah. You know, because he's like, he's going to make her an opera star by building her her own opera she house. Never, and that's she's like, I never wanted that. Do it. Yeah. She doesn't have that ability. That's not going to make it happen. So the stuff is what's always going to fix it. Whereas, but that's never going or to Or living fix in it. a palace or just, yeah, having everything. Mm-hmm. Like one of my favorite kind of like representations to me, at least of what his character was about was just in the scene where they're, they're in the room with the 
ginormous, gorgeous fireplace, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. can just hear when they're talking, they're talking to each other across the room. You can just hear the echo. Mm-hmm. To me, that was like, oh, they were just living in this big, empty house. Uh, all this stuff, nothing really matters. And then, I think that's the scene where she complains. It's like, yeah, we live in this big, huge house, but it's just full of statues and stuff. There's no people for me to like have fun with or do anything with. And that's where true connection and meaning for enjoy of life comes from is through connections to other people not through stuff you know it was that scene that um that struck me funny because okay so san simeon's in florida right san simeon's in california or not san simeon i'm san simeon's in california yeah. xanadu sorry but you it's can understand why i made that 100 uh, we need to get into the hearst of it all too but yeah yeah i want to talk about that in a second yeah. too but that scene struck me funny because uh, Xanadu's in Florida. Mm-hmm. She asks what time it is in New York. I love that. That kills me every time. And it was like, same time. <laughs> it's the same, it's time. The same time. And he doesn't. He doesn't bring it. Yeah. He doesn't say anything about nope. it. He just he says, just says he, it's eleven thirty. <laughs> yeah, because it's like they're living in a different world yeah. entirely. She even asks him at night. And he's like, yeah. And, and yeah. you get the feeling from his performance, like this is a conversation they've had 20 times. And he, yeah. he just, at this point, he's not even going to argue anymore. Like, yep. Yeah. And I mean, you got the impression she's she's not the smartest person in the world. <laughs> I mean, she herself, like I didn't have any fancy schooling or whatever, you know, she says, but he's just so tired of having this argument. Like anything he can do to keep her from screaming at him for like five minutes. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. good. What time? It's 1130. What time is it in New York? Oh, it's eleven thirty at night. Yep, you know, just and he and he keeps walking. She's not the smartest, but she's yeah. telling him the truth exactly what it needs to hear. Like she gets him. Like you can't buy love through stuff. And, but that's not what he's willing to hear. Like he's yeah. not oh, yeah. willing to accept. Yeah. I. You were talking knows. earlier about the physical thing from his past, and it brings up a memory of a scene that I always forget is in this movie. But I and it stuck out to me again last night. The first time he meets Susan, he's on his way to a warehouse. Because a bunch of his right. mother's stuff. Do you think he was looking for Rosebud? I think he was. Like, in in that moment, he's chasing that thing, that happiness, and he never gets there. But instead, he finds something else, another oh, thing yeah. in Susan that can try to bring him that happiness. So he chases that for a little while. Like, it seems he's always kind of yeah. chasing the next thing or the next person who's going mm-hmm. to bring him, he thinks, some measure of happiness. But no, I do think that's where he was going that night. I thought that too. Yeah. yeah. I love that scene where they meet, though, too. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, that's it's a, so sweet. Yeah. So funny. <laughs> it kind of reminded me of the scene from uh, Star is Born. You know, like somebody who mm-hmm. like finds real connection with somebody who she doesn't know who he is. And that's what attracts him to her, I think. Yeah. At first. Absolutely, yeah. That one night of anonymity means a lot to him and she doesn't want anything from him other than yeah. his company right. because she doesn't know that he's rich she doesn't know that he's important she doesn't know that he is you know the largest uh newspaper publisher in the country yeah. she just knows that he's a funny guy who got muddy on the street and helped her you know get her mind off of her toothache that's all she knows yeah. right and that's the most right. important thing and so for that he's able to say okay maybe this person will love me on for me on my own terms yeah mm-hmm. for for who i am and then, of course, he manages to ruin that, too. Yep. So. Something that I never thought about until this viewing, too, with Susan was the part where she's on the floor, you know, just sort of yelling at him for Leland's negative review, which was which he actually. Right. Had, right? That's the. Yeah. And she's just screaming. 
she reminded me of like the serious version of Lena Lamont from Singing in the Rain. <laughs> just like, what do you think I am? Dumb or something? <laughs> you know, it just came across like that so much. And I and I, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I love and this. And she's doing <laughs> that like lilty thing with her voice. And yeah. yeah. There's something a lot more caustic, I think, about what Dorothy Gore is doing, though. But yeah, no, I oh, I think so too. It was just I could see a link from this movie to Lena, you know, through yeah. a uh, comedic lens, you know, just just morphing along the way into something fun. Absolutely. But that was fun to see. I mean, there are the, a million tendrils of this movie that reach out into pop culture in a hundred million ways it's so, so influential and it's it's roots go like de- i we were talking before the record this movie is like ground zero for like so many people that would become so mm-hmm. influential to film over the next 30 years from greg tallin to bernard herman to robert wise to orson wells himself and and many of the cast went on to do like ray yeah. collins and joe cotton and aggie moorhead mm-hmm. like all these people kind of go off and become so much bigger as a result and it it's all because orson wells put on a radio play that scared half half the country and hollywood's <laughs> right. like hey you want to you want to come out here and make a movie and so he's like can i can i bring my friends and they're like yeah why not so that's what happens nice well the mercury theater was just cool mm-hmm. though. i oh, mean yeah. what they were doing what they were doing with radio what they were doing with stage was so innovative and so interesting i mean this seems like the next natural progression mm-hmm. to do something on film. It does. And you know what? Mercury Theater did what Mercury Theater does, and they were subversive, and they were innovative, yeah. and and that just freaked out the establishment. Exactly. <laughs> well, they didn't like That's him from the moment he arrived, either. He had, like, his beard for because he was playing Falstaff at the time. Someone sent him, like, right. a ham with a beard wrapped around it. No one in Hollywood liked him because he got the sweetheart deal. He got the deal that literally anyone else in Hollywood would have killed for. He got to write, direct, act, produce, and they gave him a million dollars and final cut, which is absolutely unheard of. Yeah. So, Michelle, you were asking what the Mercury Theater theater was. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Let's, we can fill people in. Absolutely. Um, Go ahead, Steve. Okay. You'll be able to articulate it better than me. So, it starts out of the. Or, or I guess during the war uh, time period, during the Depression, Roosevelt wants to get people working again. So one of the big government programs was funding for the arts. And so the Mercury Theater is born out of that. It's Orson Welles. It's John Houseman and just a bunch of like scrappy young New York stage actors. And Wells was known for doing these kind of very radical stagings of classic. Well, that's kind of how he got his start. Like the voodoo Macbeth is, is kind of where he got his start, where he basically takes Macbeth and it's an all black cast and he sets it in Haiti instead of Scotland. Big elaborate sets and elaborate voodoo dance numbers and like it's wild, like crazy stuff, but it it (laughs) got a lot of attention. Uh, And on the back of that, he becomes free to do a lot more things and his stagings get more and more elaborate. He does the fascist version of Julius Caesar and kind of Mm -hmm. sets it in fascist Italy in the 30s and kind of fashion Caesar after Mussolini. Uh, He plays Brutus. The, the scene where they kill Sinna the poet is like known for being like one of the most chilling scenes ever set to stage at the time where the guy's like screaming, no, I'm saying the, the crowd kind of comes up behind him and then they disperse and he's just gone. 
like the actor playing him. I think it was Norman Lloyd actually is just, yeah, I think it was Uh Mm -hmm. like, and it's such a, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. Like it's, it's such an impactful piece of theater, but that was the kind of stuff he was doing. And then they parlayed that to the Mercury theater on the air, which then became the Campbell's playhouse when they got a sponsor, but they would set these like classic works of literature, like just make them as radio plays as audio dramas. And the most famous one is the War of the Worlds broadcast, which kind of everyone knows, where instead of just saying, they did kind of say at the beginning, yeah, we're going to do War of the Worlds now. And they kind of segue into it. But most people didn't tune in right on time. They kind of like tuned in later. And so what they heard was news stories like breaking in, talking about an alien invasion in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. And it allegedly created a bit of a panic, which has, I think, most people agree now was probably overblown in the media. Probably. Yeah. The media overblowing something? <laughs> what? Say it ain't so. <laughs> but but yeah, a, that's what I've heard according too. to the me- media, it was a mass hysteria right. furor kind of moment. And it's on the back of that. First of all, they get like their Campbell sponsorship. And then Hollywood's like, um, hey, you ever thought about movies? And I think Wells had at that point made a couple of short films. Yeah, he had. I looked some of that up and it's like he had made a couple. It was Heart, Hearts of that. Age, which I actually. Yeah. So this is how deep my love of Wells goes. I was wondering <laughs> if I was going to tell this story or not, but I guess, I this might as well. I yeah, go. This is how deep my love on Wells goes. So I got married the year that Orson Wells turned 100 on his on his centennial year. And I got married in May, which is the month he was born. So my friends for my bachelor party, there is a college in Bloomington, Indiana called Indiana University. And it's about an hour south of where I live in Indianapolis. And we drove down there, we got a hotel, and we went to the Orson Welles Symposium at Indiana University. They've got like a Welles library that was like Beatrice and his family like donated a bunch of like his correspondence and stuff. And the night we were there was, it was a couple years before the movie actually came out, but it was a panel on the other side of the wind. And it was Jonathan Rosenbaum and Joseph McBride and Josh Karp and Philip Jan Reichma. And like all the people that had either worked on the film, had seen cuts of the film or were working on producing the film were all there in a panel discussion. Basically, everybody but Peter Bogdanovich was there and they were all just kind of talking about that. I actually met Jonathan Rosenbaum, famed film critic Jonathan Rosenbaum afterwards. I shook his hand. Mm -hmm. He seemed absolutely terrified to meet me. Like I was like, excuse me, Mr. Rosenbaum. He's like. What? What? Like, just seemed absolutely terrified. Just, <laughs> it's like someone knows who I am. Mortified. <laughs> no, and I just shook his hand. I'm like, hey, I just, sorry to interrupt. I'm just really, I'm a really big fan of your work and your writing. And just thank you so much. And he goes, oh, oh, oh thank you. Like, he just did not know what to do with me. And I didn't look much different than this. But like, we were just like a, you know, a group of 30 something or yeah, 30 something guys sitting and in this and everyone else is like teachers, scholars, filmmakers, film students. And a couple of my friends are just there for me. Like they have no interest in film whatsoever. So they're like waiting for afterwards when we can go to a bar and actually drink. So they're just kind of sitting there <laughs> like me and my film buddies are like edge of our seats going, uh-huh. That was your bachelor but, party. <laughs> that was my bachelor party. That's awesome. So, <laughs> I love that. But the second day, they showed like a bunch of like forgotten Wells stuff. And they actually showed his first film. His short, first short film, Hearts of Age, which featured his mm-hmm. first wife in like old age makeup. He exper- he's experimenting a lot with the old age makeup that he would eventually use here. Very heavily influenced by German expressionism. Mm-hmm. And then they also showed a scene from a short film as kind of an interlude in his Broadway play, Too Much Johnson. And they showed that as well. So he had experimented with film before going out to Hollywood. So he had some familiarity, but he's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. And so they went out to Hollywood and they, and again, he got like that incredible sweetheart deal. Absolutely unheard of 
in Hollywood at the time. RKO gave him a million bucks for three movies and he got complete creative control, which is in the studio system, completely unheard of. Nothing you no, no one ever got complete creative control in the studio system. And the movie yeah. he was going to make was Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness. Oh, really? Yep. That's right. He yeah, was gonna he do was it, gonna make Heart of Darkness. He was gonna cool. do it all POV. So it was all going to be like from the lead actor's perspective. And then at one point, the lead actor would look in a mirror and it would be Orson Welles looking back at the camera. It's the only time you would see Welles in the movie, but he'd be narrating mm-hmm. the whole thing, which I think is kind of cool. And filmmakers would that. toy with that oh, idea yeah. later. But yeah, right. It sounds incredible. <laughs> I love Heart of Darkness. Yeah. But the, like the funding doesn't come through. It's like too ambitious. But again, that's mm-hmm. just kind of the movie he wanted to make. He didn't want to make the safe thing. He would make the right. safe thing later. I would say the safest thing he probably ever made was maybe The Stranger. It's yeah. totally safe, but good. Yeah, he needed to prove that he could make a movie by the rules. And he made a damn good he one, did. though. That's the you thing. Know? Like, The Stranger, it's it's yeah. it's seen as Lesser Wells, but even Lesser Wells is incredible. Well, I mean, and even something like Lady from Shanghai. I which, love The Lady Michelle, from Shanghai. Michelle, you would, you would love you would. that movie. Okay. Rita Hayworth. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Rita Hayworth. Oh. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she's hot. Very. <laughs> and Orson Welles was was hot ah. still at the time. So. But I mean, things like things like the mirror sequence in there to be really to be able to be really experimental in that funhouse sequence, for example. It's just incredible what he was able to do, even under sort of the restraints of the studio system, and not just uh, when he had total autonomy. Mm-hmm. I mean, because he had total autonomy with money here. Mm-hmm. And then later he would have it without money. Yeah. His Shakespeare movies, I think, are his vision entirely, but they just have no money behind. Well, and then Macbeth he makes because he has to prove that he can make a movie without a budget. Like, I can make a movie even if I have nothing. And he made a pretty damn good one, too. And then Othello, he's like scrounging for fun. Like, after a point, he's like... It took four years to make the movie. In order for him to have the control that he wanted and the control that he felt he needed... He had to basically scrounge for money and do really crappy commercials and cameos and really dumb movies. And and he did all that stuff just to get the money to make the films that he wanted to make, like Othello and uh, Chimes at Midnight. And I mean, th- and those really incredibly great films. But every time he would work with a studio, it would end up coming back to bite him. And then, you know, yeah. at one point he gets money from to make the other side of the wind, he gets money from the brother of the Shah of Iran. Uh, and then, I don't know, some little something happens in Iran and that whole infrastructure crumbles. And now his, his movie is tied up with these interests from this deposed royal family in Iran. So like, which is why it took the other side of the wind like 40 years to come out. But that's kind of like the, the story of Wells after Touch of Evil, where he pretty much just swears off the studio system for good and goes to Europe to make his own shit. His career is absolutely wild. I love it. And again, it's kind of one of those things like you hear about the guy and you're like, well, you know, most people's opinion of him is, well, he made Citizen Kane and then never made another good movie after that. Right. No, he made a ton of great movies after that. They just all got fucked with. Yeah. Or he had to compromise to get the money. You think about something like Ambersons, mm. for example. I love that Which movie. even as it exists, what exists of it is a incredible film. It's damn near perfect. Yeah. And then you go, but his ending, you know, the, essentially the last, what, third of the right. film was removed and reshot um, reshot without his knowledge mm-hmm. re-edited he never spoke to robert wise again 
who was forced to do the re-edit. While he was in the, Brazil making a movie for uh-huh. Roosevelt's like campaign to try to increase relationships with South America during World War II. Right. And so just the thought that Wells' ending is out there somewhere, mm-hmm. though it's probably lost it, yeah. forever. Well, and we've thought that about so many things. Like we thought that about all that missing footage from Metropolis and then Metropolis, they find yeah. it in Argentina. Hmm. In Argentina. <laughs> Weird. I know. Why would, why would a German film per- exist in Argentina? Interesting. Oh, hmm. anyway, <laughs> but that's one of those things. I keep on hoping they'll find the extra, you know, the other six hours of green. Right. And they'll find the last third of Magnificent Anderson's, you know, as great as it is in its own right, uh, even now. I would have loved to see Wells' full vision of Amber. Same. Well, and you know, he tells Bogdanovich tells a story about how they were just like in a hotel room, like a, there was like a little party going on, and they're flipping through the channels, and Magnificent Ambersons is on, and they're like, "Oh, let's watch it." And Orson's like, "I really, I really don't want to watch it." No, no. And they're like, "No, no, no. Come on, it'll be great." And he, and he kind of finally relents, but like as the movie goes on, he starts to get like more and more depressed and, and like literally just starts crying. And then until mm. he eventually has to leave the room and Bogdanovich kind of follows him out. He's like, what's wrong? He's like, I can't, I just can't watch what they did to that thing. He goes, I can't, I can't do it. Like it was such oh, a yeah. personal thing for him and to see it kind of butchered the way that it was, the, the way that the studio kind of took control back from him and, and kind of re-edited it it while it while he was away kind of mm-hmm. killed him and and you can see in in that reaction like every one of these films is an extension of himself and and in that sense yeah. to to see it jacked with that way is is kind of kills him which is a bummer and you can see in the first sections of amberson that it could have been at least as good as citizen if Kane. not better yeah which i mean for me to say that like it, yeah. it could have been a much better film. Uh, and I think yeah. Wells thought that it was like the, his mm-hmm. cut. I think he said was better than Citizen Kane in his mind. Yeah. And and again, he was he was one of those directors who was never content to do the same thing twice, which is why he was so frustrated that everyone only wanted to talk about Kane. He's like, I'm still making movies. Yeah. I'm still doing yeah. shit. He, he, he never wanted to talk about no. Kane. And I don't blame him. Yeah. It's like that thing you did in like that piece of art that you put out in like high school or college that you thought was really good at the time and everyone else was kind of impressed with, but you've kind of like grown up since then you've started doing other stuff and they come back to that and like, Oh, you remember that thing you did? And like, no, that was no, no. <laughs> like he's moved on. He started doing other things. Like I get why he doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. It's still brilliant though. It's still a great movie. <laughs> yeah. Our discussion of this movie has been a little bit like the way the movie's structured. Mm-hmm. Kind of <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta dig that. <laughs> well, yeah, we're gonna be riffing, just, man. We're gonna be riffing. Yeah, and this is good. And you mentioned you mentioned talking about the William Randolph Hearst of it yeah. all. And I think that would be interesting to do. I actually, when I was a kid, long before I had even heard of Citizen Kane, I uh, went to Sam Simeon. Oh, interesting. As a kid. What is what is that? That is William Randolph Hearst. <laughs> no, you're fine. No, 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 that's no. fine. That's fine. We knew it as the Hearst Castle. Yeah, that's kind of what it's commonly you know. referred to as. It's basically Hearst Xanadu okay. in essence. Yeah, it's the real life Xanadu essentially. Yeah. It's got all the animals out there. It's the, the 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 land surrounding this building is massive in its own right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's got like exotic animals out. You know, giraffes just wandering on the grounds, and you know, Hearst has been dead for you know forty Decades, years at yeah. least by the point that I go and see this. I remember this really long bus ride up to the house itself. 
and it's massive. I mean, it is literally a castle mm. in America, yeah. which we don't have those. No. <laughs> you know, we just don't have those. And um, it's stone, and it, there's like these rooms that look uh, have like a cathedral look to them. I, it's it's got like five movie theaters in it. It's got a bunch of pools. God. It's got all of this stuff. <laughs> You, th- you think of media moguls, you think of, you know, like now we got like, you know, Rupert Murdoch or Ted Turner, right. or, you know, who's not really doing it anymore and people like that. Yeah. Right. And they're rich, they're wealthy, but I don't think they're anything like this guy was. <laughs> I mean, the fact that he just seemed to control everything that people read in mm-hmm. the United States. It was the Hearst syndicate. Like it was his papers. Yeah. And they were they were massive. Like his circulation was incredible. Like he single handedly destroyed the career of Fatty Arbuckle through implication alone. Yep. Like, you know, regardless of whether or not Arbuckle did the things he was accused of, Hearst made sure that that man never worked again. So if you've if you've read about Fatty Arbuckle and that whole thing, that was that was Hearst. Yeah. And so like he and he is he's the most power and he has this thing with Hollywood like he loves Hollywood. He ends up falling for a chorus girl. She becomes his mistress. I don't know if he and his wife ever got divorced. I don't think I don't so, think they as did. I, as I recall. But he's but, living um, with Marion yeah. Davies, who is a, a former chorus girl. She becomes a comedian and is actually, from everyone that knew her, was insanely talented. Like, was just yeah. an incredibly talented comedian. And I think Wells, the thing he regrets the most is the comparisons between Dorothy Comingor's character and Marion Davies. And he he's even said in interviews, I don't think we were very fair to Marion because she actually was insanely talented and we kind of treat her like a joke. And that is for all intents and purposes, probably the thing that pisses Hearst off the most. Although if you watch RKO 281, it's because uh, Rosebud is actually Rosebud. his nickname for her uh, <clears throat> situation. <laughs> <laughs> for her for her yeah. labia so. yeah so yeah um well that puts a whole new meaning on it thanks <laughs> right hey, no problem that's what i'm here for um but and that that's kind of the the common um the gossip i suppose or the common yeah. <laughs> the hopper of the, yeah. it is yeah but uh and and so i think i think it was Hedda hopper who worked for for hearse kind of got an advanced it screening seems of it. like and, it sounds like exactly the kind of thing that she was exactly the kind of person that uh hearse seems to have would have wanted on his payroll oh yeah you know, she she brought down through her gossip column the careers of many many people yeah we think about stuff now you know the inquirer this or that and the rumor mill doesn't i mean people will be like oh, i'm so shocked whatever they'd stop caring so quickly right. whereas Hedda hopper i mean her gossip column would ruin people mm-hmm. absolutely you know yeah so basically i mean it hearst kind of wages a, a a war on citizen kane he basically tells any theater that runs it that they won't get like none of his people will ever review a movie that's shown there again or something like that basically kind of holds everything hostage uh and so citizen kane like has to like play in tents and it's in large part due to the producer of Citizen Kane that any that anyone sees it at all and that it gets any kind of attention whatsoever. Otherwise, it probably would just be this weird, lost, forgotten film that no one even remembers anymore. Um, but the people that worked on it believed it and kind of heralded it and, and pushed it through the rest, as they say. But yeah, there's a, a documentary actually on the this this visual aid the that I brought, Citizen the Kane. Battle Over Citizen yeah. Kane. 
Yeah. Uh, along with RKO 281. They're all in this nice box set released for the movie's <laughs> 70th anniversary. On DVD, I'm waiting yeah. for the, the 4K releases of the last two. But I mean, yeah, it's it's an insanely great documentary. It was like it's like a feature length documentary and it's it's absolutely insane. Yeah. It's so good. It was on the earlier DVD release, which I yeah. have as well. So there there's my favorite interview. One of the talking heads is this guy who like worked with Wells in the Mercury Theater and is just like he he can't get over like the extravagance with which Wells like lived his life. And he's like, we went out for, for a meal and and I saw him pay. He, he tipped the waiter a $50 bill. I saw it with my <laughs> eyes. I'm not making up stories. Like he gets very indignant very quickly. And I'm just like, whoa, dude, I'm, I believe you. It's okay, man. Like he's, he's like really going, I'm not making up stories. And I'm like, holy cow, this guy's great. I love this guy. I, I forget who he is, but he's incredible. He's like my favorite person in that documentary. He's so awesome. But, and that goes into way more detail about who Hearst was and his kind of rise and fall. There is a story and Peter Bogdanovich actually goes on to make a movie about it in the 2000s called the cat's meow about Hearst basically shooting, killing someone on his boat. Uh, William Inga, I think his name was, who was a, a director kind yeah. of down on his luck director thinking it was Charlie Chaplin. Right. Because he thought Marion Davies was having an affair with Charlie Chaplin because they were good friends. Uh, but the movie's got like Edward Herman and Kirsten Dunst and Eddie Izzard and mm -hmm. Carrie Elwes. It's got a great cast. So yeah, yeah, that one's that one's kind of a fun one to watch. But Wells said if I'd included that story in Citizen Kane, there's no way Hearst would have ever said this movie was based on him. He goes, I left it out because I felt like it was too far fetched. But if I'd included that, we we would have never had a problem with Hearst because he would have been like, I I don't want people to <laughs> exactly. <laughs> No, whereas here it's like this is obviously about me. Yeah, you know? yeah. He didn't want to invite uh, that comparison, but but that was kind of one of those gossip things. But it essentially got buried because Hedda Hopper's sister Luella Parsons was on that boat, and basically in order to buy her silence, Hearst hires her to basically be another one of his gossip columnists. And the story never makes it out. It's all implication and hearsay and conjecture. After that, no one on the boat ever talked about what happened insane wild wild man old hollywood it i could, really is i could just listen to like old hollywood stuff and just talk about old hollywood stuff i love old hollywood stuff i uh actually had this daily reader that was um just like hollywood scandals the most shocking moments in hollywood history yeah and it was, it was just these short anecdotes a reading for every day of the year yeah. and it was just sort of fascinating it's awesome. stuff that, that kind of fun stuff that you hear about and again because of the, the way that it was always portrayed as kind of this bright, shining, glowing, glorious kind mm -hmm. of thing to know that there's a seedy underbelly and there's all kinds of weird crap going on behind the scenes is it's intriguing. Like there's mm, there's something there's something about that that we kind of yeah. want to know a little more about. Well, the way the moguls treated actors was pretty despicable. Oh, it was disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. It was some really, really bad stuff going on. Mm -hmm. So especially actresses as, uh, as although actors themselves know. were not always exempt. Um, no, no, they weren't right. But, but, you know, actresses, you, you're right. You know, the women in Hollywood thing is, has never been great. <laughs> women have never really no. gotten a great shake in Hollywood. I'm not, I don't want to say it used to be a lot worse, but it did actually used to be a lot worse. I'm not saying it's great now, but like, let's just say that the fact that certain behaviors have come to light now kind of cast a long shadow on kind of the history of certain Hollywood practices. Let's, let's just say that. Yeah, it's true. But then, you know, also, you know, the people who got together in the early 30s to make the Screen Actors Guild. 
um, you know, people like James Cagney and Boris Karloff, I mean, they were really putting themselves in some real danger oh, yeah. by starting that. And so I just got to applaud some of those heroic acts, too, of the period. Right. In a way, Citizen Kane feels like some level of heroic act, you know, to, to really stand up to power mm. in the way that it does. And there's no way that they could just bury this film because it was Orson Welles right. and he had this big lucrative contract yeah. and people knew this was happening mm-hmm. as much as they tried. There was no way this could be buried. I mean, it got nominated for what a lot of Academy Awards bunch. too, like yeah. 10 it, or best something picture, like that. Best yep. actor. I think Wells may have even mm-hmm. gotten a best director nomination. Like uh-huh. Tolland got nominated. Like it, it got nominated. Herman got nominated. Like everybody got nominated for this thing, but it only won best original screenplay. And pretty much everybody agrees that was just kind of their bone to throw to Mankiewicz because he was mm-hmm. kind of old Hollywood at that point. Like he'd just been around for a while. So that was his kind of career Oscar. And I mean, if you're going to win a career Oscar, that's the movie to win it for, really. <laughs> yeah, and then of course his kind of snarky accepted speech about it, and how he did it without Orson, right? Wells. <laughs> yeah. Right, but yeah, I mean that's that's Wells's only competitive Oscar. Like he wins the Lifetime Achievement uh-huh. Award later again when he's like trying to get funding for The Other Side of the Wind. John Huston actually accepts it for him, claiming that Orson mm-hmm. is on holiday in Europe when in fact he's at a bar just up the road watching the Oscars on TV. Mm-hmm. So when John's accepting him and I'll. I'll I'll be in, in in Europe to give this to you myself. And Orson's like, I'll meet you there, John. Oh, like just, I mean, I, I could, I could talk about Orson Welles all day. He's, <laughs> he is my absolute favorite um, historical figure, pop culture phenomenon. Like just the, the fact that he b- created his own myth by the end of his life, he's, He's basically made a career of going on the Dick Cavett show, doing magic tricks, giving Shakespeare speeches Mm -hmm. and telling stories about the 40s in Hollywood. Like that's pretty much just what he's doing at the end of his life and trying to get funding to make these movies that he wants to make. He never had anything to promote, but he'd always go on and just, you know, do some magic tricks and read a soliloquy or something. While living in Peter Bogdanovich's house. (laughs) Creating creating problems (laughs) for his relationship with Sybil Shepard. Yeah, right. He said something on fire. Yeah. I remember. There are all sorts of wild stories he, that uh, Bogdanovich has that are really Writes funny. their relationship into the other side of the wind at one point. Yeah. Which is uh, awkward. Uh, and I haven't seen the other side of the wind yet. But as much as Citizen Kane is about somebody else, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote, other side of the wind seems to be about himself. Very much. It's sort of finally this self-reflection that he's gotten to this point where he's kind of just become who he never said he'd be. <laughs> you know? the, watching some of the, the special features on other side of the wind, there are scenes where, because Wells had to film that thing so hodgepodge and mishmash, where he's filming scenes with Peter Bogdanovich and, and John Huston's not there to read opposite him. Um, and so Wells would step in and do the dialogue that John Huston's character, Jake Hannaford, would do. And the direction that Orson would give Peter was just, it's us. It's just, it's just us talking. Those scenes then become so much more potent and powerful and poignant when you watch them in that context. It's a very interesting film. It's one that I need to rewatch because it's very different from everything he's made up to that point. He's riffing on like Antonioni, mm-hmm. who he hates. Yep. Like he thinks Antonioni yeah. is just a, a joke. So he's like riffing on Antonioni at one point. It's the only time he's ever put nudity in a film. And it's so he can show off how hot his girlfriend was. And she was. She was. A, she was gorgeous you would like that that's like the Michelle that's the last Hugh. half of f so for you fake should too. see 
F for fake, yeah, <laughs> is just showing how how attractive. Also she is bragging about show. how hot his girlfriend. I guess I guess there is nudity yeah. in F for fake because she's walking around in a dress that's flowing, if you know what I mean. So <laughs> sure. So there is his last couple of films, and I think she kind of awakens him sexually in that regard because he'd always been a little, I think, a little more prudish, despite being a noted Lothario in his youth. Like, well, he was uh, super hot. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> <laughs> he is he is super i mean he is so hot in this movie like when he pulls that paper down you're like okay that, I, that's what i was just gonna say that very first shot of young orson i was like holy shit <laughs> he's got the shorts yes, kind of open Daddy. the shorts kind of yeah. open the ties undone Ooh. yeah i was into that <laughs> mm-hmm. the thing that cracks me up is that wells hated his nose like he always wore a prosthetic nose in every movie he's in really but that little kid yeah it, his nose is like it honestly looks a lot like the little kid that plays him in the first scene. Like he's yeah. got that kind of little rounded nose. Mm-hmm. He, he yeah. always thought it, it made him look weak. So he always used like nose putty to like Weird. give himself a fake nose. So he's got like this very like pointed patrician, very straight nose in this. Well, that's not the nose he actually had. But I love how the, the kids got the perfect little Orson Welles nose and then he just putties it up in his own wow. scenes later on but i had no I had idea. No idea. Yeah. Wow. wow this is the stuff you find out when you go deep <laughs> on orson welles people yeah. well i gotta tell you that kid that they cast to play young Kane is the spitting mm-hmm. image mm-hmm. It, it's just like i absolutely believe this kid grew up to be orson you Wells, you, you know? could have told me that was orson's <laughs> kid and i'd have believed you it yeah. wasn't yeah. but you, you could have told me yeah. and i'd have believed you absolutely that super close-up shot on that kid's face that just kind of kills mm-hmm. me oh yeah well he's it's like glaring at his father mm-hmm. like oh my gosh it, it's so good ah citizen kane it's such a good movie guys <laughs> it really is it, it, it's so true so true i i know we're probably kind of wrapping up there's endless things that we could talk about with this movie. absolutely I, Really quickly, I think for me, uh, there are a couple of things that's always stood out as for me as being striking. One of them is how good the old age makeup yeah. is. Still, yeah. Yeah, how it still, still holds up. Mm-hmm. Even in high def, it holds up really well. Yeah. Surprisingly yeah. well. Because I watched this on HBO Max, so mm. I think it's at least a 1080 uh, high def transfer, if not the 4K, and it's really good looking. Mm-hmm. The the other is is you know just all the performances. There's this funny thing that I never really thought about before. Thatcher does all these fourth wall breaks where he looks right at the. Cameras. I love it. <sighs> I was so I'm so glad you brought that up, Brian, because yeah. I that kills me every time. Like he he does. Yeah. He just stares right down the yes. barrel of the lens and. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, he does it like, like the whole montage of him doing that. He does it like three times. That's so yeah. great. Like he, whenever he's reading the paper, he'll like look at the camera and just start mugging at the camera. It's so yeah. great. Things that always are brought up. Things like the breakfast. Mm. Uh, just showing the passage yeah. of time and how the distance between them just grows. It's so effective. Silent, sitting at the ends of the table. The table gets bigger the as the that. years go on, and it gets more. They get She's more reading another yeah. paper. He's reading his. Like, and they're yeah. just uh, they're reading the rival papers, and they're just glowering silent. at each other. Oh, it's so oh, good. Yeah, it's so good. Um, but I gotta say, for me, as great as Orson Welles is in this, and as great as everyone is in this. Joseph Cotton is a master actor. Hell yeah. And I don't know if he ever really got the credit for how good of an actor he was. Because uh, I hadn't heard of him until I saw, even when I saw this, I didn't really know who he was. It was the third man mm-hmm. that made me go, oh, Joseph Cotton, that's a name I should watch. And, you know, then, you know, him showing up in Hitchcock and in, in Shadow, Shadow of a Doubt. Doubt. He's right. so good as Uncle Charlie. Mm-hmm. But I think Joseph Cotton's performance as Leland in this is 
just unbelievable. He's so good. He's he's so incredible. Yeah. And, and funny. You know, his, his and funny. <laughs> yeah, his old age his old age Crimitism. scenes where he's giving the interview as the old man, he's in the retirement mm-hmm. home. I was like, is that Joseph Cotton? He looks so different. Yeah, it does. You'll remember those cigars, <laughs> won't you, young fella? <laughs> yeah. It's just expertly done. Everything. I mean, obviously everything about the movie in general is, but that performance, every time I see it, I'm more impressed by it. He plays drunk really well. Yeah. Like he plays the betrayal um, mm-hmm. perfectly. I mean, it, it's no wonder that my favorite scene is him and and Wells just kind of verbally sparring with one another. I mean, the camera angle helps with this, but you see basically these kind of two intellectual Titans and these two acting Titans. I think they made each other better as performers. Um, yeah. Like they, they kind of came up together in New York theater. Like at one point I, they were, they were filming something and they couldn't stop laughing at a, at a particular line. And they basically got chewed out by the director and, and thrown off, but they basically stuck t- together, went into theater and became really great friends. Cotton wouldn't have a career in Hollywood without Wells. And I think Cotton helped uh, humanize Orson a little bit too for for people that yeah. maybe wouldn't have thought much of him because again, he had this kind of aloof quality to him. That's probably my favorite relationship in the movie is between Kane and Leland because Leland was the one mm-hmm. I think that challenged him the most because Bernstein's just all like, mm-hmm. oh, King, 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 uh, especially in that scene where they're mm-hmm. celebrating, they're, they sing the song about him. There was a man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And even more so than, you know, his relationships with either of his wives. Like, I think that one's the one that kind of got to me the most because the true friendship that could have existed between the two of them that mm-hmm. just kind of got ruined when it really didn't have to. Mm-hmm. If Kane had been more self-aware, had been more open to kermitism uh or whatever he, whatever he says to uh yeah, that, that is on character yeah, if they had been able to talk i think leland could have been a really good influence on him if kane had just listened to him you know yeah and i think it's kind of one of those relationships where when they're younger they have a lot in common and as they get a little older they realize that they value different things or they, they begin to start to value different things and whereas I think Kane's value of those things is very performative. A lot of what Kane does is very mm-hmm. performative. Whereas Leland is is a true believer. Like he he believes in these ideals. He believes in the working man and he believes in these unalienable rights that they're not getting. He likes the idea that Kane likes those things too. But when it becomes clear that no, this guy's just in it for his own power. He's not actually acting on that's it. The thing that, right. That's the thing that quietly kills him and drives him to drink. He reads that headline. He turns around. He walks right into a bar and he pretty much never walks out. Um, yeah. Like he's pretty much drunk the rest of the movie. Every time we see him, except for when he's an old man, he's drunk. It dawns on me that Leland, most of his story focuses on Kane's marital problems. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they are, uh, and, and Bernstein sort of focuses on the upside. You know, hey, when he and his wife first get together and everything is, mm-hmm. is great, right? It's like their relationships mirror what's happening in those marriage situations, you know, mm-hmm. in, in how they're telling it. So Leland's relationship with Kane sort of mirrors in some ways, Kane's marriage to his first wife. Yep. So there's a real cynicism of sort of the stilted lover, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. in the way he tells the story. That scene when they go to Susan's apartment, that kind of kills me too for everybody involved. It's so well played by everyone. Yeah, it's, uh, who plays his first wife? Is uh, Ruth Warwick. She was actually the last surviving member she of this She was cast. amazing in that yeah. scene, especially just like not going over the top with her reaction, you know, to what she's seeing 
but just that quiet like mm-hmm. disappointment and hurt that you can see underneath just kills me mm-hmm. in that scene. Yeah. And Ray Collins as as boss Jim Gettys, the very real hurt that he feels that Kane has bestowed upon him by basically smearing his good name in the paper for everybody to read just because they're on politically opposing sides. Again, I can't imagine anyone doing that <laughs> in the real world uh, for, for political advantage. That just seems so callous and heartless. It just occurs to me that everything that leads to Kane's downfall led to someone else's prominence. And that just, I hate that so much, no. but that Gettys has those legitimate problems and is basically in, in one final act of desperation saying, look, man, back off or I'm going to pull the trigger. And no one believes that he's going to do it. They're like, no, he won't. do. Even his wife's like, no, you won't do this. And he does. And it's all downhill from there. And not to go back to to Susan again, but the the quotes around Singer every time they talk about her, like she's she's a joke to everybody in the movie, except to Kane and herself. Mm -hmm. And eventually she starts to see herself not through Kane's eyes, but through everyone else's and starts to see herself as a joke. And that's what I never that saw her as a joke. Them. I saw her as kind of a tragic figure, too. She is. Oh, she, she absolutely. She, I think she's the most tragic figure mm-hmm. in the movie, to be honest with you, because she's the one who is basically led to do these things she yeah. doesn't want to do out of this man's perceived love for her, which, again... Is he's not he doesn't love her because he doesn't know how to love is is kind of the the implication that she gives. And so she's trapped in this loveless marriage and can't get out of love on his own terms that she never agreed to. Exactly. The scene. I I can't believe I've made it this far into this conversation without bringing up the scene where he trashes her bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. um, Which is such an incredible scene. And he never betrays the fact that he's like in his 20s ripping like he's 24 years old, ripping that thing apart. He feels like an old man Mm -hmm. ripping that thing apart. Apparently, after he filmed it, someone heard him as he was walking by saying, I felt it. My God, I actually felt it like he's in that scene. He's in that moment. And it's such an incredibly powerful scene because you just see this broken human being lashing out at the only thing he has to lash out at, which is stuff. Again, it's all the stuff he bought her. And that's the only way he can think to hurt her is to destroy the things, which she never wanted in the first place, which I think compounds his own tragedy. Like, yep. Oh, my gosh. This movie, you guys. I know, right? <laughs> the first shot I remember ever seeing from this movie was when, as a kid, I would watch Siskel and Ebert. Mm-hmm. And when this movie was finally released on video, it was like a huge deal. And they showed clips from the movie. They were talking about it. And I had never heard of it at that point because I was too young to Mm -hmm. know movie history, except for something like The Wizard of Oz, I suppose, was probably the oldest movie I was familiar with. No, that's not true because I was watching the Universal Monster movies. But, you know, those were the things that I knew. So Citizen Kane was just like, I don't know anything about this. But I remembered from that time, I must have, I don't know how old I was. I can't remember. But the shot where he walks by the mirrors Mm -hmm. and it's just endless versions of him down that hallway. So good. Where he's holding Mm -hmm. the globe. Mm -hmm. I never forgot that shot. Mm -mm. And so that is the first impression I got of Citizen Kane was that incredible shot. I get excited when I remember that shot's coming. I'm like, oh, we're almost (laughs) in that shot. It's, It's sort of, you know, what does it all mean? You know, it's sort of like the endless images of a human you know without really seeing them oh yeah you know all of these kinds of ideas that you can pour into that 
And, you know, maybe some of the symbols are just kind of surface symbols, you know, but hey, they work. They're effective. Absolutely. And you can pour a lot into what those symbols all mean. Mm -hmm. I kind of get a little (laughs) chill, you know, thinking about shots like that in this movie. One that I was just now thinking of when you were talking about that was um, the, the shot of him watching her perform the opera which again having not seen this since high school and and seeing the there's the gif of him clapping the you know clapping meme yeah I, I knew that but like seeing it in context again i was like oh that's actually a really really sad moment watching the look on his face and the emotions that you yes. can see across his face because he knows that she's not good but he's still he hears people making fun of her yeah. all around him he knows he's failed because she's actually not that great and but she's he's still wants to love her to love her talent quote unquote she's a songbird quote unquote mm-hmm. but he's just, he can't be wrong yeah exactly, exactly. there you go yeah i was trying to think of what, was, what yeah. it was yeah because if she's bad then he was wrong then he was wrong and he can't sure. be wrong so what does he do he doubles down and he starts yeah. touring her all over the country or in the same scene he just he claps harder and longer than everybody else gives their standing ovation yeah but he doesn't start until everyone else stops yes <laughs> everyone else is stopping and then he's then he starts and then he builds until he makes himself look a fool he's yeah. standing and clapping long after everyone has stopped and he realizes oh i'm the only one doing this now yeah it's one of those kind of mortifying moments when he snaps him. out of it it's like the look on him is yeah. just like mm-hmm. he, it just goes to show what a great actor yeah. wells was too oh yeah even that makeup or not the full-on old age makeup where he just looks like a little bit different it's so good and so convincing and that works on two levels because the makeup itself is really incredible and again that's a lot of wells's stagecraft the, he was on the cover of time magazine in this like very intense old age makeup for a show that he did and had like this giant beard and things but it's also in the way that he carries himself like you believe Mm -hmm. at 20 that he's 20 but you believe when kane is 70 that he's 70 because of the way that wells is moving like he has this and again it's the theater actor in him this very intense control of his body and his mannerisms the way that he moves you absolutely believe this is a 70 year old man Mm -hmm. and every actor in the movie plays themselves at all ages with the exception of the childhood kane like everett sloan is bernstein from age 20 on now everett sloan always kind of took it a little personally that everyone else got like a bunch of old age makeup and the only thing they did to him is put a bald cap on him like everett sloan actually i think ended up committing suicide shortly after he filmed the lady from Shanghai because because of just he couldn't get roles because of the way he looked like the way he carried himself like he was like a deeply depressed very kind of self-loathing person which kills me because he's so good he's amazing in this he's He's insanely good in lady he's even better in lady from Shanghai I think like that's his tour de force there like he's so good um and it just it kind of killed me that he was never able to really see the talent that he had but I absolutely love the age makeup. I love the performances. And it, it and again, it, they're all stage actors. So it, it's the carriage. It's the way they move in those different roles. And, and Sloan does a great job too. Like he moves around a lot as Bernstein. And I think mm. Bernstein seems a little more spry than Kane, but he looks like a man who's had some years and some miles. Like he's kind of hunched over a little bit when he's playing the older Bernstein. And you see that in him. And it's, it's a great performance. He's so good. Yep. Yeah. There's not a weak link in any moment you know even the (laughs) stuff that are kind of mistakes are still kind of awesome you know Mm -hmm. like the fact that you can see through the cockatiel's eye 
Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it still works for me. I love the way that looks. It has a weird effect, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a great jump scare. It is. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> got <yeah>. me. <laughs> Peter Bogdanovich asks Wells about that. He's like, why is that cocktail in the movie? He's like, well, I figured people would probably start nodding off and the movie's about to get important <laughs> again. So I had to wake him up. Right. I love the uh, the transition of the photograph of the writers from the Chronicle. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> it's so of those. fucking perfect. <laughs> it, that one is seamless. But there's the one of the door, <laughs> the front of Alexander's door and the f- almost seamless transition from the shot of her front door to the newspaper article. And oh, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Article. Okay. yeah. Like there's so many shots like that in this movie. And it's kind of one of those things like no one told Wells he couldn't do that. So he's like, well, why can't we do that? And like those transitions are phenomenal. It's a perfect like, storytelling lo- technique. Like why wouldn't Absolutely. you do something like that? It's something that it seems to me like filmmakers like the Coen brothers really latched on to mm-hmm. is, tra- is transitions like that. Like mm-hmm. in Blood Simple even, you know, you have this shot of one of the characters I think Dan Hedaya, you know, looking up at the ceiling fan and then it goes into the ceiling fan and now you're in another room, you know, and it's just like this seamless move from one character to the other that connects them in these different ways. And another one in Fargo that always struck me was when Steve Buscemi is hitting the TV. Come on, come on, work, work. Then all of a sudden, if it goes closer and closer to the TV, then all of a sudden it hits this thing about the bark beetle. And, you know, it, and it's, and it's, it's, it's the Gundersons in bed watching this, right. this documentary on the bark beetle. So good. Um, I mean, it's those sort of things strike me as being very Wellsian in, in their approach you know absolutely yeah was it i think it's true foe that once said everyone will always owe him everything uh and i think a lot of that is because of this movie like speaking of wells everyone will always owe him everything because this movie is not only is it ground zero for so many talented people who worked on it but it's also ground zero for so many filmmakers who were inspired to create film and inspired to use the seemingly groundbreaking techniques that he, if not pioneered, then maybe perfected Mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe combining them all together into this one object um, that inspired so many people to actually create art that the ripples of this thing, like you said, the tendrils are long and they're still being felt today. Like, like it gave filmmakers permission to try different stuff. Absolutely. And thank God that they do. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> thank God for filmmakers that take risks and push boundaries. And yeah. thank God mm-hmm. for filmmakers who who are free to make the art they want to make free of, of studio yeah. interference. I'm always going to, even if I don't like the movie, I'm always going to stand up for a filmmaker's right to make the thing they want to make. Quick. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think from like a storytelling standpoint, yeah, I don't know if you get Rashomon without Citizen Kane. Right. I don't know if you get Pulp Fiction without Citizen Kane. Right. Another example would be like American Graffiti, where you're cutting between these multiple stories, you know, um, things like that. I think there's so much that happens here. And then even from like a special effects standpoint, because there's so much of this movie that is these optical effects Mm -hmm. that you don't think about when you're watching it because it's a drama. It's not a science fiction film or something, right? Like the pan in on the window at the top of the nightclub, like they actually had Mm -hmm. a breakaway set for like the sign. Yeah. So the as they were pushing into the window, they literally moved the sign away and just kept the camera yep. pushing it. Like that's that stuff that would go on to be and that's Hitchcock. Right. And then you Fincher know. <laughs> Fincher does <laughs> yeah. that digitally in Panic Room where he does that shot like through the the tea kettle or whatever. Like right. That, yeah. that, the legs on that are long. Like it's it's those kind yeah. of tricks and things that filmmakers latch onto and say, 
hell yeah, let's let's do something with this. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they still work in this movie. And, you know, you can yeah. even see, you know, I, I think I'm one of them, like, you can see that they push the table together yep. uh, because the hat is the wobbling hat wobbles, a yep, little bit. On this side. But if you don't know that. You don't see it, yeah. You don't see it. I don't know but, what you're talking about, so obviously, yeah. yeah. <laughs> In the boarding house at the beginning of the movie, because mm-hmm. they do this shot where the camera pulls back as the characters are approaching the table to sign the papers. Well, okay. for the camera to get through, you know, the table had to be split apart. Mm-hmm. So they push the table together so that when they arrive at the table, it's yeah. one thing, you know, yeah. and, and so you can I see even that notice it. that's on it. <laughs> wobbling just a tiny bit you don't think about it It makes the camera invisible it It makes the camera a non-entity and i think that's one of the things Mm -hmm. that he was trying to do was you know you don't want to draw attention to the camera even though the shots in this movie are very like specific Mm -hmm. and very like the camera is doing all these things you don't think about the camera being there and capturing there there are a few dynamic camera movements and i love dynamic camera like the the scene the the political rally where it's kind of pushing in on him as he's getting giving the speech or, or when it's like mm-hmm. moving in on the, the Rancho sign at the beginning, at the beginning of the film or whenever you go to the nightclub and then it, where, how it pulls back out. Like, I love that dynamic camera stuff, but again, it just puts you in the action. Like it doesn't draw attention to the camera whatsoever or to its movement. Mm-hmm. It's dynamic camera movement, but that still places you right in the thick of the action, which again, as a theater director, that's, I'm sure what Wells is going for. He wants to put you in the action without making it cognizant. You're watching a movie. Yeah. All that stuff mm-hmm. made it feel like a very modern movie watching it now. It's makes it entertaining to watch, but it's only really when you stop and think about like what you're seeing that you see like how good it is because uh, the story and everything else pulls you in. One of my favorites for some reason uh, is when he goes to the Thatcher's library to read his diary. That huge weird room where it's just like one table and the safe on the other side of the room. Like, that angle makes it feel it was very interesting. Uh, That's some German expressionism kind of yeah, angles yeah. And, and stuff. <laughs> I also love when she goes to close the door like the door, that huge door with the big like round orbs on the front just kind of comes swinging at the camera and it basically shuts you out while locking him in and then Mm -hmm. then you're back on the other side like it's really effective storytelling and it kind of gives you an idea of just how secretive this is or how protective they are yes. of this this man this one manuscript or or kind of maybe thatcher's holdings in general we're never really given much of an indication if if this whole building is just for that manuscript or more That's of what thatcher's I, was things or... I was like is it just for this diary that whole safe in that huge room just for this one diary <laughs> i mean as william allen says he made a lot of money yes so so i mean you know when you when you make that kind of money that's uh uh, that's the kind of thing you do after you die, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I guess so. So, like we've said, we could just kind of endlessly talk about this movie. Remember, remember a half an hour um, ago, Brian, when you're like, "I think we're wrapping up." <laughs> I think we're wrapping up. Yeah, I, I do. I do remember that. I don't want to say it again. Uh, in these moments, is there anything else that just comes to mind that you specifically there's like we got to talk about this or that? I think I remembered most of the most of the things I had forgotten. Although I will, we will stop recording and I'll be like, oh, here's 50 more things I want to talk about. Right. Sure, of course, uh, that yeah. always happens. Who knows, who knows who's going to let me on a podcast to talk about Citizen Kane again? <laughs> Honestly, um, I mean, I, and it's never one I can discuss on my own podcast. So I'm kind of uh, well, just just say you know there was going to be a part two. You can just totally make it up. There you and, go. Yeah, we won't, tell, we won't we won't tell anybody. Okay. Um, all right, Kane two, Kane harder. 
just I'd definitely be down to watch it again and talk Hell about yeah. it again. <laughs> Cause like I said, oh, like man. it's it's another thing that happened the last time we had a friend on with Pan's Labyrinth. Mm. That was when I had only seen once many, many years ago and wasn't sure if I was gonna like and I absolutely loved it. And now that's that's yeah, such a great movie. I, I love Citizen Kane now too. Yeah. I'm glad I could help you uh rediscover this absolute gem. I, I hope some of your listeners will go out and rediscover this gem. It again, again, it's the most basic bitch opinion I could have, but it's a good movie. It's a great right. movie. Like, and and I gotta say, if you are a fan of mm-hmm. The Simpsons and you've never oh. seen this movie, you will understand so many more of the jokes from that show. Oh, after how have you even movie. understood what The Simpsons was doing half all, all this time? Like everything in this. I mean, the whole Mr. Burns character is based on Charles Bobo Burns. is Rosebud. I mean, Bobo is Rosebud. I mean, there there's so many things. They even did the you know the whole. You know, yes, the man. It's Mr. It's Mr. It's, it's Burns. Mr. Burns. You know, then the whole joke. Wait a minute. There's no Kane. I love in that. Kane. Oh my gosh, that may um, have been my first exposure to Citizen Kane. Was that joke? <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's it's one of those things because I think when I finally saw the movie, because I had been a Simpsons fan, mm-hmm. I saw it in college for the first time, and it was about the same time. You know, when that AFI list came out. You know, it's like I've never seen Citizen Kane. I should probably yeah. see Citizen Kane. Uh, so I finally saw it. It was like. Oh my gosh, the number of references I've seen to this movie alone is unbelievable. There's just so much here and there's so much influence that it's had i'm glad i came at it with the approach of not feeling because usually i don't know as much as you guys obviously know about old hollywood orson wells or any of that stuff i just came at it the same way i do any other movie is like what can i see in the characters and their relationships and i found a lot in this and it's definitely a a rich enough experience watching it that way but learning all this stuff today too is yes pretty awesome well and i i really do so. michelle i think that's it for, for for those that haven't seen it like to divorce yourself of the the greatest movie ever made stigma yeah, or whatever that's, that, that's the way to watch it attached, totally. that is absolutely the way to watch going without any expectations without expecting to just be blown away by it and i think you'll be very pleasantly surprised at how approachable how accessible how engaging it is yeah, because exactly it's it's fun like everyone comes at it like it's this eat your vegetables movie but it's no. not. It's it's, oh, it's and it's, it's so a big old ice cream sundae with a cheeseburger blast. on top, baby. It's so funny too. Oh my god, the shot! I I think I missed it the first time because I was watching something else in the frame. But the shot, like right at the beginning during the newsreel footage, um, when they say like he supported other people and then disavowed others, and it's a shot of him and Hitler. I yep. totally missed that it was Hitler, and I was like, oh god. <laughs> yeah, it's like him and Roosevelt, so, him and some like South American so dictator, so and then him and Hitler. Fifty years before Forrest Gump. Right. Like that. <laughs> so I thought that sort of impressed yeah. me, you know, again, seeing that because it's pretty seamless. You Particularly know, the double they got for Hitler looks a lot like you can yeah. tell like the Roosevelt <laughs> yeah. guy is an actor, but you get to that Hitler shot and you're like, fuck, is that Hitler? Like, did they actually go shoot this with Hitler? I thought they spliced it into old oh, footage. They might, they of might, they may have. Something. I don't know. That's what it looked. Really that's what it because like it yeah. looked wild, wild. I love this movie so much. Thank you so much for talking with us about it. This oh, thank great. you for letting me talk about this. Yeah. Like I said, very yeah. few people are going to let me come 
I mean, consider most of the the podcast friends that we share. I mean, none of them are ever going to cover Citizen Kane. So thank you guys for letting me come on and talk about <laughs> Citizen Kane. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we want to do a show like this, where we could cover all sorts of genres, all types of movies. And the only criteria we have is it has to be a movie you love. Exactly. It's your favorite movie, then primo. Good. Let's do it. Because that's what people are going to be passionate about. I'm always glad to revisit this movie. I just don't do it that much. But every time I do, it's it's surprising and fresh and exciting every single time. Yeah. Every time. <laughs> it, it's one that I don't revisit as much as I, I probably should as, as it is my favorite movie. But every time I rewatch, every time I'm like, is it my favorite movie still? I'll sit down and rewatch it. And I'm like, yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, I just I just love it. Like I've got the Criterion 4K. I was prompted by your invitation to order the Criterion 4K. It'll be in my hands nice. tomorrow. I'm so excited. You have to have it. If it's your favorite uh, yeah. movie. You have to have it, right? And that's it. Like I already own this incredible box set, which is why I didn't end up buying the movie on Blu-ray when the opportunity came. And I'm like, I regretted that. So I'm like, okay, first of all, it's Criterion. So I know the transfer is going to be great. The supplementals yeah. are going to be incredible. Yeah. And two, it's 4K and I now have a 4K player. Yeah. I my excuses are gone. I will order this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I need to upgrade yep. because I I, I I only have it on DVD still, and and I was like, I need to hop Same. up to yeah. So mine is that the edition, pretty cool though. Mine's the edition. That edition looks pretty cool for that one. So, so yeah, mine's I've got really the, old. The mine's 70th anniversary. It's got like it, I don't. You guys can't see it, but it's got like the puzzle. Like it's actually oh, like in, yeah, engraved. Yeah, yeah. It's got like puzzle pieces. It's got yeah. the rosebud symbol on the back. Nice. It's got like a booklet. It's got postcards. It's got three movies in it. It's got mm -hmm. this: the Battle Over Citizen Kane and RKO Two Eighty One. Like this nice. 70th, 70th anniversary edition is really incredible. I'm. So is the Criterion going to have that stuff, do you think? I have don't said, know. I haven't, I haven't seen what the supplements are on that. But that's why I'm not getting rid of this because yeah. I still want all right. those supplements too. I'm sure the Criterion one has incredible. I could look them up right now. but As I recall, I think it does have Battle Over Citizen Kane for sure. Love and it, it okay. might have RKO 281. Uh, I'm really I, interested to watch both of those now. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd enjoy them, Michelle. They're pretty good. Um, and Liev Schreiber plays Orson Welles in 281. Malkovich so I, is, is, uh, is Mankiewicz. Yeah. Melanie it's, Griffith is Marion Davies. James Cromwell is Hearst. Like yeah. Ed, uh, George Which is a great perfect cast. casting. Perfect it is. cast. Oh. Like it's it's a really phenomenal cast. Yeah. So I haven't watched that in a long time. I, I haven't either. Movie. I should not. I might watch it after we're done recording. <laughs> it's not very day. long. It's just like a brisk 90 minute movie. You know, it was an old HBO TV movie. So yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Well, it's probably on HBO Max too. Actually, it probably I looked, is. But it probably is. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it was. Yeah, I bought a DVD this last week because I really wanted to see this Robert Altman thing, uh, mm. Tanner '88, and yes. then. Bought the Criterion DVD. Mm -hmm. Then I went in later to HBO Max and there it was. There it I was is. like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but now if they ever take it off HBO Max and you want to watch it, it again, you'll you have, have it. it. Exactly. And that's, that is why I am a physical media apologist. Right? Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> me, too, me too. The streaming landscape is uncertain, so I'm going to own DVDs and Blu-rays. Thank you. Well, since we're talking about related Yes. things to Let's citizen do kane do we want to jump into our recommendations for this episode let's do our it. guest yeah. goes first yeah go okay ahead, i was Steven. gonna say i don't want to step on anybody's toes so i was gonna let oh. you guys go first because i've got literally like 10 things i could recommend based on this episode <laughs> but if we're talking wells stuff i could very easily recommend another movie i've named like 10 of them in the course of this episode but probably my favorite alternate piece of wells anything and it's my favorite book on filmmaking ever written 
is the Peter Bogdanovich book of interviews with Orson Welles called This is Orson Welles. Excellent um, book. Excellent book. Yeah. It is absolutely incredible. When I taught that two-week class on Orson Welles when I was a high school teacher, that was my text. Mm-hmm. Like that was the text that we use. And it I read that thing in like a week. It's thick. It's dense. There's so much to it. Yeah. I couldn't put it down. Like it was, it was absolutely incredible. Um, just the insights and the the peaks into his character. Wells again is kind of one of those people who controlled his own myth, though you only see the parts of him he wants to see, but because it's Bogdanovich, he's more willing to let some of his guard down. And I will say it's significantly better than the the Henry Jaglum chance to try to cash in on the same thing with my lunches with Orson, where uh, Wells does not come off nearly as uh, insightful as he does with Peter Bogdanovich. So cool. yeah, that was kind of after written after Wells and Bogdanovich had had their falling out, but no, yeah. this is Orson Welles is such a phenomenal book and I, I cannot recommend it highly. Enough. Awesome. Yeah. I picked that book up a couple of years ago, just happened to find it in a used bookstore and it's like, okay, I'm going to grab this Peter Bogdanovich, Orson Welles I'm in. And boy, it's terrific book. Mm-hmm. Really, really great. And it's not sort of like a simple chronology. It's very Kane-esque in that it jumps all over the place. And it's based on just whatever they happen to be shooting, whenever they'd happen to be together, Bogdanovich would just break out his recorder and be like, hey, let's chat for a bit. You mind? And he's like, no, let's do it. Yeah. So they just, wherever they were, whatever they were doing, they just sit down and they'd stop and they'd talk. And he'd just get it on recorder and they then he'd type it up later and he published a book. It's really, really cool. It is very, nice. very good. All right. Michelle, That's do you got right. something or do you want me to go? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't really have anything. And like I said, I'm not as well. I haven't even really seen that many Orson Welles movies, uh, to be honest. Um, but I'm definitely going to after this. You say Lady from Shanghai is something mm. for I me. I think you'll really like that one. It's a, okay. It's 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 fairly noir and it's, it's very style. noir. Yeah. It's nice. great. Yeah. All right. I'm into that. And, and Rita Hayworth is just at maximum Hot. Rita Hayworth hotness. Yeah, <laughs> so maybe like maybe Gilda goes a little little harder with the Rita Hayworth hotness, right. but it's like right on her right on its heels. It's so yeah. good. That's perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Well, then, OK, if you don't plug yourself, then no one's going to do it for you. We actually talked about Orson Welles earlier on in the show. What I don't remember what episode that was. That was one of our first. That was pretty like, early on. Yeah. That was like the eighth or something. I don't remember. Was, but yeah, we did a, an episode on the third man, which I really liked because that was the first time that I'd ever even seen that. And the one that really got me into Wells and how hot he was, for one thing. Um, I but, really did that movie. <laughs> yeah. So go watch that movie. Go listen to our episode. I think it was a good conversation, too. I loved um, yeah. getting into that one. That was our dad's birth years. So as yes. I recall, was that one pair the third man in... 12 Angry Men. Men. Yeah, so that's a pretty good double feature right there. Yeah, if you want to watch a couple of really, really good movies, you you can do a lot. Can't go wrong with that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to pick another Wells film. uh, And this is one that I think kind of goes nicely with Kane in a lot of ways. It's about ambition. It's about downfall. uh, And that is his version of Macbeth from 1948. And one of the things that's interesting about Wells was making his Shakespeare films kind of in the shadow of Laurence Olivier making hits. Now, to me, I watch the Olivier ones and I like them, but they feel like what people think of when they think of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. You know, they're a little bit academic. They're a little bit cold. Eat your vegetables. Yeah, yeah. You know, with the exception of Henry V, which I think is a little bit more fiery and scrappy and energetic, 
Hamlet, I have a tough time with Hamlet. Let's put it that way. Uh, And they won Best Picture that year. Well, that same year, uh, Orson Welles made Macbeth. And it is fiery and it is dirty and it is it's all over the place it was made on a shoestring you know you can tell the sets are made out of paper mache Mm. i mean it's drippy and wet and watery and has characters that he made up that are not in shakespeare and i love that about it and he loved shakespeare but he was not precious about shakespeare and so that movie, the dagger scene where he's talking about, is this a dagger I see before me? The mm-hmm. way the camera just sort of blurs in on him and it's like you're inside his mind. Uh, it's a fever dream and it is so wonderfully made. I've been watching a lot of versions of Macbeth and that Orson Welles one is one of the best, even though it's so handmade and it's so low budget. You can just see that even with the limited resources that he had, he was going to make the best thing he possibly could with what he could. And that's, that's Wells. Like everything he made was a passion project. He made it because everything he directed, I should say, is a passion project. He made it because he wanted to, he was passionate about the material, something he believed in and wanted to do. While also in this case, trying to prove that I can make a great movie, even at the Poverty Rose studio. I don't need a big budget. I don't need a Hollywood studio. I can, you know, shoe shine and spit and a little bit of gum and I can make a great version of Macbeth on my own yeah. at this studio down the road. Thank you very much. <laughs> and yeah, he did. I didn't, you know, all of uh, releasing put out a great Blu-ray of it. I don't mm. know if it's even, I don't know if it's in print anymore, if I'm being honest, but it's beautiful. It looks great. It has both versions of the movie on it. It's got the longer version from 1948 where it has them all speaking in their Scottish brogues. Oh, hell yes. And then it also has the hack to death uh, studio cut yeah. that was redubbed and everything. So the shorter version um, and the movie's not that long as it is, no. you know, and it's, it, for a Macbeth adaptation, for goodness sake. Right. It's really not that long in its full length. But yeah, it's a great movie. The way everything is depicted uh, sort of has a emphasis on religious aspects in it, which, you know, is sort of my thing, I guess. And frankly, it's, it's fun Shakespeare. I mean, if you hate Shakespeare, if you're thinking, oh, I'm eating your vegetables kind of thing, watch the Wells ones, especially Chimes or Macbeth. Chimes Uh, is maybe my second. On on some days, it's my second favorite Wells movie. On other days, it's Touch of Evil. Yeah. But like, that's my trifecta. Like, that's my Wells trinity right there. Like, those movies, I can't say enough good stuff. But again... Here's the thing. I am one of those people who believes that Orson Welles never made a bad movie. So Not that I've seen. Yeah. And I think I've seen most, if not, there's one I haven't seen. I own it. I just need to watch it. But it's The Immortal Story is the one of his, oh, where, oh, yeah, which is yeah. like a TV movie. That's the only one I've not seen. I haven't uh, seen that one either. Yeah. I Like I said, it's on the shelf back there. I have the Criterion edition of that because, again, basically, if Criterion put it out and it had Wells's name on it, I bought, I bought it. So Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because again, supplementals and transfers, those are going to be great. So Exactly. Yep. Okay, so um, as we're closing up here, uh, tell us about Disenfranchised. Uh, what's yeah. the show about? Uh, where can we find it? And what do you got coming? Yeah. yeah. So Disenfranchised is a podcast with myself and my, my friend and co-host, Brett Wright. We talk about movies that, again, we kind of have this weird fascination with movies that were supposed to be franchises, were supposed to kick off these long-running series of movies, and then never got past the first one for one reason or another. It's usually money, but not always. Brian, you've been on a couple of times. We had you on to uh, to talk about the Wes Craven film Shocker. Uh, and then you came on to talk about 
uh, Night of the Creeps uh, and, and thrilled everyone, really, when you came on to talk. I got about a couple that. of new fans of uh, Night of the Creeps in that. Uh, yeah, you did. Episode it sounded like, which Hell is yeah. awesome. Yeah. We are both we are both now Night of the Creep stands. So excellent. You got that <laughs> going awesome. for you, which is great. And then you you actually came on one of our Patreon shows, Unenfranchised, to talk about uh, Scream Four. And of course, Unenfranchised is uh, one of our Patreon shows about movies that killed long running franchises. So Scream Four obviously was was the one that kind of put the the nail in the coffin for the Scream franchise for the better part of a decade. Patreon.com slash disenfranchpod for that one. Uh, and Michelle, you're going to be coming on, I think, in the next couple months to talk about uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So we're yeah. <laughs> we're thrilled to have you on to talk about that. So, I mean, we cover a lot of different genres, too. We cover a lot of mm-hmm. different kinds of movies, which is a lot of fun. And then every now and again, I'll, I'll realize that there was another movie that was supposed to get a sequel that like this morning, I realized Pillow Talk was supposed to get a sequel. So now we've got a Rock Hudson Doris Day movie to talk about at some point. Excellent. <laughs> so um, I didn't even know Who Framed Roger Rabbit was supposed to have a sequel or anything. Oh, we're going to get into Toon Platoon. You can guarantee that. Nice. That was that was a thing that was going to happen until Spielberg said no. Um, but yes, yeah, so we have, uh, when's this, when's this episode dropping? It's like no early April. <laughs> okay. No, yeah. perfect. Cause so April, April, we are doing a month long uh, retrospective on yeah, one of six. the great artists of the 1980s, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so we're going to every, every Thursday in April, we're going to be covering a, a new Arnold movie. Excellent. Uh, that was nice. supposed That'll to kick off. Awesome. On, yeah. That was supposed to kick off its own franchise. We, we love the idea of doing theme months and we hadn't done one in a while. So, so we've got like three coming in 2022. So yeah. we've we've cool. got more on the way. But yeah, it's it's Arnold April on Disenfranchise. So, yeah. so come listen to us <laughs> talk about some Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. And yeah, maybe you can guess what we're talking about. Maybe not. But yeah, it's, it's yeah. going to be a good time for sure. Yeah, I've become a big fan of Disenfranchised. Not just because I've been on it a couple of times, but <laughs> just because you and Brett just have a great show and I love your Thank rapport. You. I love the energy you bring to it. And uh, that's one of the reasons yeah. why I wanted to have you on, you know, and I'm sure we'll be talking to Brett as well. Oh, uh, to you have absolutely him, need to get him, Brett on here. Yeah, to have him <laughs> on to talk about. Uh, one of his favorites as well. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on once again. And thank you so much for having me. It's again, yeah. it's always a delight. I love Brian. I love talking to you, Michelle. I've I've grown to love talking to you because I've, we've <laughs> no, it's because I've just met you, and have, every conversation we've had has been absolutely fantastic. So yeah. the more the more uh, conversations yeah, totally. you and I get to have, the better is is what I say. Yes, so I and we've so. we've got there have been some some things suggested. So you might be seeing more of Movies for Life and Disenfranchise, maybe a collaboration sometime in the future, maybe. Maybe a, a, a crossover? I don't know. We're, we're talking. Yeah. There's, some, there's some discussions but, being had. I told you um, about this, Michelle. <laughs> we can, we can re- we'll refresh your memory off the air. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I, know, I thought I did. I may not. If I'm I don't old. think so. I'm old. Okay. But but here's the thing. I think you're going to be on board. Uh, we're I know I know Brett and I are on board. So yeah. okay, it's it's going to be fun. Um, but yeah, so there's a tease for something that's coming in a few months. So yeah, yeah. there you that's, go. Well, that's a ways down the road. But but uh, yeah, check us out on social media. Disenfranch Pod on Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, Facebook. 
Uh, I'm Chewy Walrus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm mostly on Twitter, tweeting inane things about movies and or food and or whatever I think about in the moment. Me too. Yeah. So I don't know. I can always use- JCVD and cheeseburgers is what I talk about. Absolutely. Hey, I am- Cheeseburgers are my all-time favorite food. So- There you go. I I feel like I have found a kindred in you, Michelle. Yeah. All right. All right, Brian, what do we have coming up next? What we have coming up next- do remember because next time is my birthday so we're gonna talk about a couple of fun picks well we're going back to one of our favorite things again to do on the show which is films about filmmaking films about filmmaking so which one are you bringing michelle i'm bringing (laughs) one that covers a different kind of filmmaking yes it does um (laughs) which i'm super excited to talk about from 1997 we're going to talk about paul thomas anderson's boogie nights (laughs) hell yes yes yes. i'm so excited i haven't seen it in a while i love that movie though i I love it i'm stoked to get into that yeah (laughs) yeah and then uh for me uh i'm bringing back a movie that i was originally gonna have on this series way back when we did one cut of the dead and singing in the rain i switched to singing in the rain and so we are going to be doing uh frank oz's (laughs) film starring eddie murphy and Heather Graham. Hey, Heather Graham. Double Heather picture. Graham. That's right. There you go. And uh, Steve Martin, Bowfinger, uh, oh. which is just. That's going to be fun. So, <laughs> so funny. Fun. So funny. So that's how we're going to spend my birthday is uh, talking about <laughs> talking about a couple of really, really great. And mostly, yep. I mean, Boogie Nights has its dark moments for sure. So, But generally pretty fun and energetic. Yeah. And- movies so i hope you'll join us for that next time and uh so michelle where can we find us you can find me on twitter at michelle in Egan. and you can find me at brian d kuiper the show is at movie life pod come follow us there uh give us rate or review on our apple podcast spotify say nice things about us please if you like us and if you like steven yes like please which, I, which i'm sure you do and you should rate and review and listen to disenfranchised as well because totally please come listen to disenfranchised excellent show great show <laughs> um please listen to us we're cool yeah <laughs> that's what i always I, say i like us i like us i think we're fun yeah. and cool and our, nice. our little you know independent podcasts that we do you know yeah. they don't they it's harder for us to build audiences it takes a little bit more time um but i think we put at least as much love and care into our shows as any of the big guys right absolutely and we're doing it all without the help of anyone else in the editing or research i mean we're literally it's just us doing it ourselves so yeah yeah you know you got to support the little guy i mean yeah it's it's cool to listen to the big guys too i do it you know i've got my big podcast that i love but i also love to support the indie podcast because I am one. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. So, Michelle, what are we going to do next time? Uh, We will see you all next time. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.